Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago, Chicago, I will show you around. I love it that your bottom dollar, you lose the blues in Chicago, Chicago, the town that Billy Sunday couldn't shut down. Welcome to the Best Picture Cast. I am your host, Kieran B. And I recently completed my goal of watching every Oscar Best Picture winner ever and decided to start a podcast to review each one. Each episode, myself and a revolving co-host will discuss, assess, and evaluate a different Best Picture winner with a goal to establish a ranking for the entire list. This is not a who-should-have-won podcast. We are here to discuss the inner circle of movies who took home the crown in their respective years. As a disclaimer, this is an opinion-based podcast and a subjective discussion by movie enthusiasts who don't claim to be trained experts. If we destroy your favorite movie or we praise a movie you think is trash, we encourage you to write in at bestpicturepodcast at yahoo.com. That's bestpicturepodcast at yahoo.com. You can also hit us up on Twitter at bestpicturecast, at bestpicturecast. And here we are. We're back again for another episode of Best Picture Cast. I am here joining me this week, making his Best Picture Cast debut with Robert Bobcat. Rob, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. Thanks, Karen. Welcome to the welcome to the mix here. Uh, Bobcat is excited to be here. Yes, yes, and we're excited to have. It's been a little, little, little time coming here. We wanted to get this uh, going from the start, and it's, yeah, I gotta, gotta be honest. If you don't mind, we just jumping in here. I had I went through different phases with this movie. When you first asked me to do it, I'm like, why the hell is he asking me to do a musical from 20 years ago? Um, and then you know, I was like, you know what, this will be fun because. I don't really was not a huge fan of the movie, so maybe we'll just trash it. And then I actually watched it, and I was surprisingly delighted with some things and got more out of it than I thought of. I still don't think it's like one of the great best pictures ever, but there's a lot to talk about, and I'm, I'm at this point pretty excited to do this movie. Yeah, for sure. And this movie he's talking about, of course, is 2002's Chicago, which and when you say it won 20 years ago, it's kind of wild to even think about that. Yeah. Seriously, 18, right there. The way the time moves. This is our first musical that we're doing here. There are nine other musicals on this list, or at least we'll debate exactly how many there are, because one of the things we're going to talk about today is what really defines a musical. Before we get to that, uh, we did have a a very fun episode last week. We did our first three-person podcast, calling back Grant Z and Joey R, and we tackled Alfred Hitchcock's work a bit and... The 1940 winner, Rebecca. Rob, you have any past experience with Alfred Hitchcock movies? you have any kind of comments on any of those? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the my favorite is uh, To Catch a Thief. Mm-hmm. Um, Cary Grant on the you know Amalfi Coast with Grace Kelly, yeah. who is probably, I think, maybe the most beautiful woman to ever be on film. Unreal. Well, unbelievable how amazing she looks, especially, you know, we're talking 60 years ago at this point. And everything that you can do with all the celebrity appearances and, you know, all, the, all they do for that. And also, North by Northwest is one of those where I can't believe I'm still on the edge of my seat watching this thing that was done all, this, all that time ago. Incredible. The yeah. nice little kind of slow build into, a, into a, great, a great thriller. And we talked about Grace Kelly, obviously, last week <laughs> in, in Rear Window. And it's crazy. 
it, when you look at his work and just and we 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 asked this question a little bit last week. What do you think that he would be like today if he were making movies today? I mean, it's wow. wild to think about. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he did. I, I love the the Hitchcock thing where you kind of don't know what's happening or why things are happening, like in North North by Northwest, why he's being like Cary Grant's being pursued or the suspense he creates with not really knowing which side a character's on, like in To Catch a Thief. You don't know if he's actually kind of a reformed criminal, as he claims, or if he's actually the one that's stealing you know, these, these jewels or whatever. So the uncertainty is timeless. Maybe he would be like um, David yeah. Fincher or something. Yeah, that's, that's interesting to see. But I, mean, I, wish, I wish David Fincher made more. Yeah, he's kind of on hiatus with the uh, Netflix stuff. But. Yeah, it, it's, I think... Back then, you could get away with a slower build with some of those, some right. of the thrillers and some of the mysteries yeah. has where maybe he would have had to spe- speed things up a bit and with today's yeah, audience's to ex- attention span. Do some kind of hook, yeah, absolutely. We do hope you enjoyed that episode. And if I, what I really hope is that if you didn't see Rebecca out there that you were able to watch it. We remind everyone it is free on YouTube. You can just Google it right in there and check it out. It's a, a fun movie, albeit black and white, and a movie that came out 80 years ago. We definitely encourage you to go check that out and then listen to the episode of the podcast. Before we get to Chicago, uh, I do want to address a question that was asked to us on Twitter. And it also kind of applies to what we'll be discussing a little later on when we talk about musicals and the Oscars and why exactly the Academy seems to lean to rewarding musicals when they do come out. But this question on Twitter was asked to us by... A good follower of the Twitter account, Catherine Short, and she asks, None of the films you have covered so far could be considered epics, a genre that Best Picture is most often associated with. Do you think a film should have to be about important issues and have a grand sweep in order to be deserving of the prize? Now, it's it's obviously a little tricky because when we're talking about almost 100 years of movies, where something is rewarded and why it's rewarded and the quote unquote, what makes a best picture winner. I mean, I think the most simple way to say what's best makes a best picture winner is what was the grandest film that came out that year or what was the best film that came out that year. Although I know that many people would argue the best film of the year is rarely awarded the Oscar. Yeah. What what do you, if you, do you think that epics are, are the most rewarded? Do you think what? Yeah, I don't think epics. Well, maybe if you look across time, and you look, go back to things like Lawrence of Arabia or any like the war films, yeah. you know, then you're getting or I, I don't know how she's defining epic. She might be defining like uh, Schindler's List as epic because yeah, it's such a big, Gandhi. you know, yeah, like a big subject matter to take on. And, and the second part of her question is, you know, does a movie have to talk about an important, important issue? I would think that ideally, once again, um, that the best picture is just excellence in the major parts of making a film from the way it's shot and the way it looks to the performances and the story itself. And one of the things about Chicago that, you know, I have a bone to pick with as far as being a best picture winner is that the story is not like emotionally impactful at all. Yeah. Like it's super well executed from the performances, the, the, the music and the cinematography, even 20 years later, 18 years later, it still looks really great. And we'll get to that later. Yeah. But I think it really falls down in that, um, story category and kind of the emotional impact it has on you because it's kind of lighter fair. I mean, I think if you look at something like Gladiator, which is one of my favorite um, films of all time, and I'm sure that you guys would do 
a podcast eventually about that one. You have incredible cinematography and visual effects and incredible performances from Russell Crowe and um, Joaquin Phoenix and the other people in that movie. And the story is really, it had nothing to do with any current social issue. It's just a really impactful emotional story about this guy's incredible journey from being a general to being cast as a slave and then getting back. And, and I would of, probably consider that one an epic. Yeah, well, it's definitely yeah. an epic. So she might be right about the epic thing. Yeah. But, now, but then you think, like, what is, like, is Titanic an epic? You know, probably not in, like, the sense that, that many people would mean when they say epic because... There are epic things happening. Right, it's like an the, epic the boat. boat, the, <laughs> the, boat <laughs> the boat sinking, like, when it splits in half, that's, yeah. like, that's something that happens in an epic, quote-unquote. Yeah, and but, then obviously you look at something that's maybe, like, the anti-epic would be, like, a driving this daisy or something and then mm-hmm. that's more of a movie yeah. focusing on a social issue right and yeah. maybe that's the flip side of it so I, I for me I prefer the grandiose cinematography like Lawrence Arabia to me is one of my favorite movies of all time and, and I, it's gonna fight to be my favorite movie on this list I just like that that visual the visuals to me mm-hmm. like I loved the Revenant. A lot of people didn't like the Revenant. Yeah. You know, they were falling asleep during. Right, to me, right. like I, I felt like I was going to get frostbite yeah. by watching it. Yeah, it, trans- it transported you. Yeah, the, yeah. the Revenant. And did that's what. Time. That's what I. I prefer to have that in there. But I do like a good drama too. I mean, before we were setting up, we, you mentioned Whiplash. Yeah. We were talking about that in the scope of right. musicals. That's not anything close to an epic. It's it's filmed in <laughs> New York City and in, yeah. in the, classrooms. The people speaking in rooms is is the term I think, like a chamber piece. Yeah, they, they yeah. call it. So. But that movie's to me is is way more impactful than you know. Yeah. I'm sorry to upset people, but Gandhi to me, like <laughs> I would rather watch Whiplash three yeah. times in a row than Gandhi once. <laughs> you know, but it's it's an interesting idea, and we'll we'll get into a little more of what gets rewarded and what should get rewarded a little later. Before we start, we have a couple nice beers here. What are you drinking today, Rob? So I have a um, a Lagunitas IPA, which is brewed in Chicago, Illinois. So this is my my ode to the the movie that we're doing. There we go. Local Chicago beer. Very nice. Six point two percent alcohol. So you might hear my tone change from now until the end of the pod. Be ready. <laughs> I went uh, I went to the upstate New York variety. I have a Saranac Polar Haze IPA, a little seasonal IPA for the occasion. So are we ready? We're ready. Are we ready to Let's dive in. Okay. Here we go. The year. It's 2002. George W. Bush is in his first full year in office as America is dealing with the wake of the attacks on 9-11. The Anaheim Angels, I almost said Los Angeles Angels, which they're referred to today. But the Anaheim Angels, managed by Mike Sosho, win the franchise's first and only World Series championship, defeating Barry Bonds and the San Francisco Giants in seven games. And of course, the number one song of the year, the Billboard number one song of the year was Nickelback's How You Remind Me. <laughs> Hell yeah. Rob, what's your favorite Nickelback tune? Um, well, I mean, you cannot mess with a classic like How You Remind Me. It's kind of like saying that, uh, what's the, what's the uh, Beatles song? I was, oh man, I was just going to compare Nickelback to, uh, not Bob O'Reilly, what's the Beatles one with, with, with an intimate, like um, All the Lonely People, what, any, anyway. Yeah, oh, you know what, it's, it's funny you said that because in an earlier episode, I called Eleanor Rigby Bob O'Reilly also, so there we go, <laughs> there we go. we're staying consistent. Yes, Eleanor Rigby. There's, there's always that joke about like, there was some, I don't know if this is a real concert, but it's Nickelback and Creed, and like someone was tweeting out how this is like 
one of the seven layers of hell having to go to that show. I'm like, <laughs> I would go to that show any day of the week. That's right. I always like the... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> you know what I like? Actually, my favorite Nickelback song is the one that used to open the WWE. Uh, We're going out tonight. Yeah, to right. right. Yeah, so. Yes, yes. The, the, the WWE Raw theme. Right. Okay. So we've closed the big the book on Nickelback. Ugh, hopefully for the entirety of the podcast. But you never know, of course. Chicago wins Best Picture in 2002. It's directed by Rob Marshall. The screenplay written by Bill Condon. It's adapted from a 1975 musical based on a 1926 play written by Maureen Dallas Watkins, which was a satire based on a 19, two 1924 court cases. The movie stars Renee Zellweger, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Richard Gere, John C. Riley, Queen Latifah, Tay Diggs, and more. It wins the Oscar for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actress, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Best Art Direction, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound. It's also nominated but does not win Lead Actress, Renee Zellweger, Supporting Actor, John C. Riley, Supporting Actress, Queen Latifah, Best Director, Rob Marshall, Adapted Screenplay, Bill Condon, Cinematography, and the original song, I Move On. So, it is our first musical that we are attacking today uh, for this podcast. When was the first time you saw Chicago, Rob? What was your first experience with it? The first time I saw the movie was this week. Honestly, I hadn't seen it before that. Really? I, I rented it this week um, just to kind of catch up for this. But I had seen the play last year on, on Broadway. Wow. Uh, we did the, you know, you live in New York and you never take advantage of the New York thing. So kind of like the tourists in your own city thing. So we, so me and the girlfriend went to go see uh, Chicago on Broadway. Yeah, that's that's my history with the, with and what, the film. And what was your experience with the Broadway play? Yeah, I guess this is going to maybe take us into the discussion of the story. But it was way more like childish than I expected it to be. Uh -huh. And this kind of gets into the marketing of it. Um, one of my big things was this is like it's... It's advertised as like scandalous and sexy, and it's rated PG thirteen. Yeah. So like, it's not. It's not scandalous. Like there, there's a lot of murder like covered, but it's it's like you said before, a satire of you know Chicago in the nineteen twenties. It's not like really showing you anything. Yeah. And it's not like Boardwalk Empire. Is kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah, and you know the PG thirteen rating here is interesting, and I don't. I think that if this movie comes out today. I think PG-13 meant something different in 2002 than it does today. I think okay. they would push the extra envelope and just go R now because I don't think R movies really deter people as much as they used to. Right. I think that, you know, they, they obviously they wanted to make a PG-13 to broaden the audience. They wanted mm -hmm. to, to have kids come in and watch it. But you already have, you're dealing with a couple of, of interesting issues with, you know, murders and there's obviously, there's sex in it and... Right. and there's somewhat aggressive language for a, for a PG-13. And a, an interesting fact about this is they changed the MPAA restrictions on smoking in movies after this movie. Okay. So I think they, like a PG-13 movies now can't include as much cigarette smoking as there was <laughs> in this movie, which is crazy. Yeah. But this is, this is like right around the time when they're stopping smoking in in. Bars and restaurants right. in, in the major cities. Does that hold up for even for period pieces? Like, if in reality, in the 1920s, people, like, everyone's smoking, do you have to take that out of a PG-13 movie? I, I don't think today 
I don't think today in, in 2020, but I think that in when they were trying to get laws passed on on smoking indoors in, in New York City and in California and, and other major cities, Chicago, uh, I think that they probably were, was a little bit of an agenda there. Okay. I don't know, though, to answer your question. And, right. and I think it, it's about uh, like the excess of it. Say like Mad Men, where they're smoking and drinking the whole time. Yeah. Know, it's an interesting thing. Well, anyway, on, on going back to like the, the scandalous and sexy marketing of it, this is as sexy as your grandmother can handle. Like this is <laughs> – we're not talking about <laughs> – we're not talking about like forbidden love – affair like you know um, moonlight or something like that where you know people are not able to be themselves we're no, also not talking about something really aggr- aggressively sexual like 50 shades of gray where we uh-huh. have like bondage scenes happening and things like that this is basically people two women that want to be stars and there's was a decision made probably in 1975 or whenever to say all right put a ball in lingerie and like that's the sexy part of this yeah i guess there's also a little i mean there's a lot of talk of like sexual promiscuity and infidelity maybe that you know you can consider that as well. There's actually kind of a lot of funny lines around that. Like uh-huh. marry, I think it's marry Harry, but mess around with mess Ike around or something like, like that. Yeah, yeah. Which <clears throat> maybe that was actually aggressively sexual in the 20s. If you think yeah. about it, if that was in the original play, then I could see that really being like, this is a scandalous show. Let's go see this. Yeah. Let's take the wife and go see this. This is going to be exciting. But now it's not really holding up as a sexy. Yeah, there's nothing all that risque in this movie really at all. I mean, I, I think that Catherine Zeta-Jones is sexy as hell in it. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a good-looking woman. And, and another thing that I read, which was kind of crazy to me, is that... And she does all her own dancing and everything in this movie. She's pregnant while this movie's going oh, on. Oh, really? She's, she's like a month and a half to two months pregnant. Oh, interesting. And it even got to the point like where she started to show where they had to do some body doubles, but mm-hmm. not on any of the dancing scenes. She did all the legit dancing yeah. with the – I don't know how scrambled uh, Michael Douglas's baby is now from all, that, <laughs> from all those dancing scenes. Uh, it, uh, scrambled. His scrambled brains. This is a very interestingly paced movie in comparison to the other ones. We start off here with a little five, six, seven, eight from our boy Tay, Tay Diggs. It really just kicks right in with a musical piece and you have – Catherine Zeta-Jones's all that jazz performance. When, when I watch these movies, what I'll do is like I'll, I'll watch them just like anyone's watching a movie. And then I'll go back and then kind of like write the scenes out just to kind of help myself gather ideas right. and, and notes. And this movie was literally, it felt like I was watching just like seven music videos in a row mm-hmm. going along a plot. Okay. So it was very easy to kind of outline with it. Oh, yeah, as far as, like, dividing it into chapters. Yeah, yeah. I see that. So you're, you saw the play first, and then you watched the movie for the first time. I didn't realize that. I thought you had seen the movie no. years back. As far as just watching, sitting down and watching a movie, it's, it's a pretty entertaining movie. Yeah. It's an easy watch. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you like musicals or if you, are, if you like this music and, and this one, it's, it goes pretty quick. There's not a lot of fat on it. What I was saying before is I don't really feel too emotionally invested in the characters. Like... Mm-hmm. If it does or doesn't work out for Roxy, like, I didn't really care. But at least you're moving along quickly, and there's some, like, really interesting set pieces that happen. And, and I think to, to what you said, too, is if you really don't like musicals, you're probably going to have a hard time with this because this yeah. is as... If you don't like musicals, I think it's pretty safe to say you're not going to have a good time with any musical. Because, <laughs> like, just, just going from talking to going to a show tune, like, mid-sentence is just a move in musicals that you have to, you pretty much have to sign up for yeah. when you're turning it on. You suspend the logic and suspend the yeah, disbelief. Yeah, there's a lot of, lot of suspension of disbelief. This and, and most musicals that, you know, by, by the traditional like Broadway definition of a musical. I saw a list of the Best Picture winners that were musicals, and it said that this was the 11th musical to win Best Picture. 
And I looked at the list and boom, 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 went down it. And then the one right before this one was Amadeus. That's to me is not a musical at all. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just because music is in the topic of the theme, right. which got me thinking is Star is Born a musical? Mm-hmm. Is Bohemian Rhapsody a musical? Right. Is Walk the Line a musical? You know, th- those are because there's songs in them and because mm-hmm. they're, and we'll, we'll just, we'll tackle we just that. just get into it now? I mean, we're, we're, we're teasing. We're dangling Let's in front do it. Of the well, let's, let's do it because you know we'll, it'll set the tone for what we're we're talking about with this movie. Yeah, I mean, to you, what makes a musical? To, like, so I'm thinking of musicals in like the like traditional like Broadway show uh, sense of the word, where it's singing and dancing, and the plot directly relies on the songs to go somewhere. And even I would even throw in like some of the old school Disney movies into that. Like, yeah. Lion King, Aladdin, like they kind of Beauty do have the, the same thing where if you look at, just pick an example, the scene in Aladdin where like he becomes a prince. It's a song like make way for Prince Ali kind of thing. He goes from not from a person with a lamp and a genie to he's actually a prince in a castle at the end of it. Yeah. So like that's the definition of a song moving the plot forward. And you have a lot of the examples of that here in Chicago. I would say that Chicago is an example of a black and white musical where these songs are pieces of the plot. Mm-hmm. There's literally the plot. I mean, you, you, the trial takes place in the middle of a song. Yeah. It, like Razzle Dazzle. Yeah, Razzle Dazzle. Um, and then, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit before. So the other ones that maybe you can argue, like, what, what is the definition? You look at the biopics of, like, Ray Charles, Ray, Johnny Cash, Walk the Line, mm-hmm. where... Bohemian Rhapsody. Bohemian Rhapsody, Rocket Man... The songs definitely like they do a good job of kind of relating the song to something that the singer is going through, mm-hmm. but that's kind of in my mind just showing a reason why the song was written, not actually the the song itself giving you the story itself. Yeah. I looked at this one, and "Star Is Born" to me was one of the other examples that we looked at. And while the songs don't necessarily further the plot, they are kind of intertwined with the journeys of the characters. Yeah. And if you look at Chicago, like, for instance, you'll have a song will introduce a character. Like, there's a song that introduces yeah. Queen Latifah's character. Yeah. The song that introduces Richard Gere's character. Mm-hmm. You kind of get that in Star is Born, too, is we get introduced to Bradley Cooper's character through song. We yeah, get introduced to Lady Gaga through song. Yeah. I don't necessarily look at Star is Born as a traditional musical, but I think you could make the argument. Now, Rocket Man, you said you, you did not see Rocket Man. I didn't see it. No. Okay. Rocket Man is a, is a musical to me okay. because it takes the music of Elton John... And it intertwines it through the character's arc throughout the story. Okay. And it kind of artistically uses his songs. Whereas I think Bohemian Rhapsody, which I did not see before, I understand he's more or less just performing the songs. Yeah, well, I'm definitely with you with A Star is Born. Because that is really, a, uh, the story is about two people connecting through music mm-hmm. and then writing music together. So it's blatantly, you know, the music being a huge piece of it. Yeah. Um, Versus, like, Ray Charles's life is a story in and of itself. Yes. And then they perform the songs, you know, in parallel with it. Yeah. So I wouldn't define it traditionally as a musical. And walk the line. If it, if it wins Golden Globe for Best Musical, I'm not going to, like, have a problem with it. We're a little bit splitting hairs here, but... Yeah, well, it's interesting, too, though, because Star is Born, the music is organically being performed. It's just <laughs> a tricky part to do. It's not like a person just breaking out into song nonsensically. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Rocket Man, yeah. you do get that. Yeah. You Rocket Man, he just, all of a sudden the room turns pink and he's singing to himself. Yeah. So, so I, I, I did kind of kick this question around the old Best Picture cast community today. And, okay. and, and one of the biggest heels of the podcast, Artie B, uh, 
chimed in pretty voiciously about what he thinks a musical is. And he and he's a huge fan of, of Amadeus and was uh, adamant that it is not a musical. And this is what he how he defined a musical. He said, a musical is when the characters sing and dance as a part of the story. Movies about musicians and musicals are different. I think that your point about biopics are biopics. Right. And just because there's music in the, in the topic doesn't yeah. necessarily make it a musical. Yeah, I'm pretty aligned with Artie on that. Which, I mean, me being aligned with Artie B, <laughs> and this is a guy that I know for the audience... <laughs> It's a man I know, and Kieran said he's kind of the heel of the podcast. He's really the, just the heel of anyone's life that he's ever coming to. As much as as much as I think the guy at the core is a good guy, he's a heel. I'm on I'm on board with that description. And if you love musicals and love Artie B, or hate musicals and are adverse to Artie B, he will be back next episode, and he will be back. With Chris G from the Rain Man podcast, and they're going to more or less debate the Goodfellas, Gangs of New York topic that has kind of broached the Best Picture cast wow. world. It's going to be a little head-to-head action. We're going to we're going to do a best a Best Picture winner. It's going to be 1929's Broadway Melody, which is probably not going to really draw asses into seats. Wow. So we're going to couple that with the with the Goodfellas Gangs of New York written, written after Chicago was written. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, that? it was. Yeah, it was. And 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 here, just so we just have a, a a topic of comparison here. Here are the ten or eleven, if you consider Amadeus, eleven musicals that won Best Picture. Broadway Melody, nineteen twenty nine, was the first. The Great Zigfield, nineteen thirty six, which is a biopic too, by the way. Going my way. 1944, An American in Paris, 1951, Gigi, 1958, West Side Story, 1961, My Fair Lady, 1964, The Sound of Music, 1965, Oliver, 1968, you can get a gist of what was going on in the 60s, Uh, and then there's an inclusion of Amadeus here, which we don't necessarily agree with, and then Chicago in 2002. So that's that's your list of musicals that we will cover in the future. This is the first one we're tackling today. How did how did you how did you like the start to this movie? Did it, did it get you right away? Did it? I was really bored by all that jazz. I gotta be honest. <laughs> it's a slow song, especially you know to start. The star power of of Catherine Zeta Jones, I think, comes through the further along you get into the movie. Like when you see her in jail, and when you see her doing kind of like the the more advanced kind of dancing she was doing later in the movie, then you, I mean, her like charisma comes through a little bit more. I can't believe I'm saying this, but her starting the movie with all that jazz, I was like, oh, God, yeah. I'm going to really have to try to get through this. It was a little bit different when I saw it on Broadway because you're, you know, you're in the room with these people and you know, it's a live performance in front of you and you, know, you're, you have an audience around you, so you're still kind of like getting oriented. But I was a, yeah, not totally thrilled with all that jazz. Yeah, I, I didn't hate the song personally. I, I love Catherine Zeta-Jones, so I, I can always look at her. Though the, I just one kind of just thing that struck me out of the gates here is we do kind of while she's performing you get a little bit of the affair between Roxy Renee Zellweger and McNulty from The Wire who is, <laughs> who is, who is uh, the, the the first real victim in this movie here as he yeah. gets his ass shot. I know that we before this kind of said that this is a satire and we're not going to get into what a lot of movie podcasts do, which is look backwards at eras gone by and just, like, pick out what's problematic and what's How not. How dare they? Yeah, like, it's the most boring thing to do, but <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to do some kind of ironically 
problematic stuff that has a bit of humor to it. Okay. And the scene with Renee Zellweger, the, you know, what kind of kicks off her whole journey is kind of represents my, my big take on this, which okay. is this movie is somehow sexist towards men and women at the same time. <laughs> and the, the, these are, this is my logic for it. Like you have the women that are all murderers, just kind of, just all emotional basket cases. Right. They're all jealous. They're all being cheated on. Or they're dumb enough, like Renee Zellberger in the scene that they're being lied to. This guy says that he has connections, that he's going to make her a big star, and then he sleeps with her, and then he doesn't have connections. So you're either kind of out of your mind, like emotional nutcase, or you're an idiot, and then your immediate response is to blow someone's brains out. <laughs> like, that's how women are portrayed in this. And on the other side of the coin, if you're a guy in the movie, you're either being cheated on or you're being killed. <laughs> and, and you know, you also know that this movie does not work if it's two young up-and-coming male performers who want to get notoriety and build their star power by murdering their mistresses. No. That doesn't work. No, no. one wants to see that. Not it's in not getting era. made. Even in the 20s, <laughs> they would be offended like, oh my God, these, these people are monsters. So... I don't, want to be, I don't want to be nitpicky <laughs> right out of the gate here, but this just drives me nuts in general. But in this movie, and I realize it's not terrible, but 95-pound Renee Zellweger is real damn good with that handgun, by the way. Like, she's going to whip that puppy out, spin around, and get a heart shot on one bang. There's no kickback, no nothing. McNulty goes down. Come on, man. Hey, man. It's a Baltimore PD. You know, this is the 20s. There's People are a lot tougher. She's a badass bitch. So while... Renee is getting, uh, Renee Roxy's getting tangled up in her mess. We see the cops kind of arrive to uh, arrest Catherine Zeta-Jones because all that jazz has gone on way too long and it's bored the audience to death and now she needs to go to jail for it. But she's, <laughs> she's being taken away for her crime, which we learn a little later on. Now, I kind of like, so I saw this one eight to ten years ago. Okay. And I remember like sort of enjoying it, not really thinking much about it. And I kind of like thought that we were going to go into a slowed down plot at this point. I forgot that it like just goes right into another song again. And that's kind of how this movie goes. We kind of go right into the, this, this funny honey yeah. Renee Zellweger song. And we meet John C. Riley, Amos. As he tries to take the blame until he learns more about it. <clears throat> what did you think of John C. Riley in this movie? So first of all, shout out to John C. Riley, who's in three of the five Best Picture nominees in this year, two thousand three. Yeah. He's in The Hours. He's in uh, Gangs, of New, Gangs of New York and Chicago, and with prominent roles in each. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's it, a hell of a year. Really, it, it is a hell of a year. Gets a nomination in this one. Which, uh, you know, I guess is, is a deserved nomination. He's, he's good in this. I, mm -hmm. I liked him. Yeah, he's good in it. It's kind of like a not that exciting of a character. It's, it's you know, Renee Zellweger's husband who is just kind of a mope, who's, you know, kind of a sucker. Like, he just sticks by her and, and everything. And, and one of the things I was reading that was a little confusing to me is this site, screenit.com, okay. did kind of a review of... Who are the role models? I think this is for like parents who might be watching this with with a, with a child. Oh, and we're searching and, like, for role models in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like everyone in the movie is thrown under the bus. Like, yeah, Catherine Jada Jones's character, Richard Gere's character, uh, Queen Latifah's character, who's like the corrupt prison. Even the warden. prosecuting attorney, you yeah. know, who gets accused of the, forgery. The uh, yeah, right. That, that, <laughs> the 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 people in the media, but they like give a really glowing review. This is what it says. John C. Riley plays Roxy's husband who sticks with her despite her having an affair 
killing her lover, getting pregnant by another man, or so he thinks, and then lying to the general public to get off. And he sticks by her. Like, is this really a role model type behavior? Uh, yeah, Sticking no, by someone through that? That seems like you have no self-respect yeah, at all. You're, you're is that what you want over. like your kid to aspire to? Don't, don't give me... Just because you're not murdering someone or smoking or drinking... Like, they say here, Richard Gere, um, he's a successful defense attorney, but he smokes and drinks a lot. Like, really? So that's, that's a bigger problem and he than having no self-respect at all. tampers with evidence. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, but, like, but, you know, but... but no, he's a rat. He's allowed to perjure himself, but, but you know, the smoking and drinking, we can't have this. <laughs> that's it's, it's a ridiculous, ridiculous take. Interesting. Uh, I'm sure it's. A, a, I'm sure a, it's a great website. I'm I sure they do wonderful work. Okay. But that I that yeah that I don't agree with. Um, as far as uh, John C. Riley and his performance, I think it's fine. I think it's solid. Maybe they just wanted to give him a nod because he's in three of the, the great movies of the year. I guess the thing that he I think he did really well is portrayed like the guy who could be manipulated really well yeah he he you know played him dumb but not in a way that it was like overly cartoonish yeah i think that's kind of the way that maybe like lower like the working class people of that time were always written and stuff mm-hmm. they're always written to be kind of stupid like what she did what i thought she was just going out for milk yeah. so yeah i think he executed it fine but it wasn't it crushes like, his music number too a little later on yeah, that's a weirdly catchy song. It is, sure and we'll I like that little it. dance he does too. I could watch that for yeah. hours. Cellophane, like that. yeah, yeah. That like, just... like he's like kind of oh, moving right, right. by sliding his feet and waving his <laughs> arm. Like I was like hypnotized by that. You know, I, so overall, I think it's solid performance. But I wasn't like it's not like a, you know. Yeah, and it, we should say too that this movie is based on a play written in 1926, which is based on trials that took place in 1924. Actual. Real life trials, right? That's a that was a huge. And shock his character was a real character, like a real that yeah. was really a guy who stood by his wife through it. You know, paid mm-hmm. for the attorney, got out, and she left him as right. soon as he got out. And so she like, went the, the, and married a boxer, and then like extorted money out of him. Yeah, and then got this is, I was shocked when I was doing a little research on this that this is actually based on two real women yeah. that are pretty close to these characters. Yeah, like I don't think they were trying to be in show business. They weren't like performers at at you know speakeasies and jazz lounges. But what they their trials are pretty much right right you know right on par with what they actually did. Yeah, and, and, and the, the, the Renee Zellweger character in real life, I think, gets married twice more and divorced twice more. So <laughs> she's... the the character played by Catherine Jada Jones um, has a great quote, like the real life person. She basically got drunk and got mad at her the guy she was cheating with, her her lover, and shot and killed him. And her uh, quote to the media was, gin and guns, either one is bad enough, but together they get you in a dickens of a mess, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> I will say yeah. this. Yeah, I, think I will that's... say this. If I, got, if I have to pick a liquor that's gotten me in, in, in the most yeah. dickens of a mess, it's gin. I think that's 100%. for me. I'm, everyone else is a little different, yeah. but gin, gin equals dickens of a mess. Yeah, uh, yeah anyone, yeah. Let's just say I agree with you on that one. John C. Riley, solid job. He gets that, that supporting nomination. Another supporting nomination in this one, which is our next character we're introduced to, is good old Mama, <laughs> Queen Latifah, and her tune, When You're Good to Mama, as uh, Roxy enters the prison. What did you think of Queen Latifah's performance in this one? So I thought she killed When, uh, when You're Good to Mama. Yeah, that I mean that's a really another really catchy song. 
Yeah, like I, I was actually kind of got some adrenaline going when she was yeah. singing that. Like that, yeah. I'm like, this is just cool 1920s being in a jazz lounge, speakeasy, really, really fun little uh, number here. And then I thought that her acting for the rest of the movie was so just one note. God, I agree. And like, just she basically had the same look on her face and the same expression and vocal. Dry, dry. Like the entire time. Now let me ask you this, because this is this is that that's. I'm on, on board with that. Now, this role was supposed to go to Kathy Bates. Okay. Now, it, I haven't heard Kathy Bates sing recently or right. ever, but I would wager to say that she's not going to crush that tune or another tune the way Queen Latifah does. It probably would be a little lackluster or, or maybe wouldn't even be as prominent. Yeah. But she's going to knock the hell out of those acting <laughs> scenes. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. She's, a, she's a world-class yeah, actor, I agree one that. of the best of our time. Yeah, Queen Latifah kills the, the song. I think that's probably why they cast her. And she has like this – it's kind of a cool crossover casting, especially 18 years ago where you have this woman who comes up in like the hip-hop community. Mm-hmm. And like now she's you know, in this kind of mainstream movie. She had done a few movies before this. I think she might have been in like Friday. And, but like mostly movies that were geared towards – like the urban community. So it's probably like a casting got that had people really excited. And she went on to do a lot more movies after this. Yeah. So her acting gets a lot better later in her career, but this acting performance just not good. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't see necessarily the, the cause for for awarding it either. But that just goes back to the question because Kathy Bates was supposed to be first and she turned it down. To do about Schmidt, which she was also nominated in the same category for supporting uh-huh. actress, that doesn't take it home. Catherine Zeta Jones takes it home. Would you rather, in this role, would my question would be, would you rather the big, powerful voice that absolutely knocks the song out of the park, like you said, gets the adrenaline going, mm-hmm. and then leaves a lot to be desired in, in, from an acting standpoint, or would you rather another actor, amateur singer? do the song, and then really kind of nail it with the acting that was asked of that role? So I don't totally have an answer, but I can tell you from the Broadway play, the character who played Mama was funny in every scene she was in. Okay. She got a laugh in every scene she was in. She was like the comic relief mm-hmm. of that performance. Which was not called upon of Queen Latifah here. Right. I guess, I don't know, maybe she didn't, I don't remember the dialogue like word for word. Mm-hmm. She kind of, but like, basically what I'm saying is that if you have a better actress throughout the movie, it's you know more entertaining and yeah. gets more of a reaction from you. Yeah, uh, her other scenes were not. It's a musical. Maybe you have to go with the best musical and, performer. And you just have you have Richard Gere singing, you have Renee Zellweger singing, you have John C. Riley singing. None of those are are, are fantastic yeah, singers. Catherine Zeta Jones is an excellent singer. She really, right. she crushes yeah. her, her spots. So maybe they needed a little more of a, a, a musical yeah. powerhouse. We have to nail this. The Mama's song, we have to nail that because we've got three other people who aren't professional you know, musicians. Yeah. I, guess, I guess that works. I, I would probably, I'd probably stick with her there over Kathy Bates. Yeah, so, so Roxy's now in prison and she, uh, you know, she's oogling, oogling Velma, who of course is Catherine Zeta-Jones' so, character. Let's jump in right here. Like, it's weird that... It starts with Roxy killing someone going to prison while Catherine Zeta-Jones is performing. And then she gets there and Catherine Zeta-Jones is in prison. Velma's yeah. in prison already? Yeah. She just, what, happened to kill someone on the same night? Or was, did she somehow like, was she in prison already 
And then she got to go perform at yeah, the club she was that's at. an interesting question there. I mean, what I took out of it, and now you're making me question what I took out of it, <laughs> is that because she says I was in the club that night. She does say that. And they suggest that she went home with McNulty that night. And then Catherine Zeta-Jones gets arrested right after that performance. Maybe they just had her dead to rights and there was no real delay in it. Whereas, you know I mean, what? Because Mama is taking a cut of, of the women that are performing. So maybe Catherine Zeta-Jones is in jail this entire time. And they, they just let her out to perform. No, though, because they because members she's supposed to in that opening scene she's supposed to perform with the sister, and they're asking where the sister is, and she responds, "Oh, she's not herself tonight because she just killed." Oh, her. okay. So that that opening scene so is the night she night. killed the sister. <laughs> yeah. So I, this just sounds like a, so a time murdered, crunch that makes they, no sense. They both murdered someone on the same night when we when we opened the movie. Yeah, maybe maybe Catherine Jones got there a little earlier that morning, and it's just real comfortable in prison. I, I don't know, but that doesn't that doesn't necessarily. She seems pretty established in prison. Yeah, she's got the choreography ready she's for the next Mama's, scene. She's in Mama's office drinking. Yeah, yeah, and she's real tight with the next crew. And this now we get our first night in jail for Roxy, and now this tune and scene knocked my socks off the first time I saw it, yep. and it blew me away again last night. The cell block. Tango. He uh, had it coming. He yeah. had it coming. <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. I mean, I, I don't know what your thoughts are, dude, but I this is just so visually excellent. The song, again, like you said, like a lot of these tunes, is just catchy as hell. Mm-hmm. Choreography is killer. The chicks are hot as hell yeah. in it, one after if another. If the movie's ever sexy, this is the sexiest oh, part. Oh, this is the sexiest part of the movie, no yeah. doubt. And it's just, I just love that storytelling in a, in a six-verse song right. with each one that goes yeah. through. The, and the, kind of the reasons for them killing their, the men in their life are kind of funny. One, one was because he was popping gum too loud. Yep. Another is just in a completely different language, just Hungarian. Right. Well, now, do, you, do we know anything about this, about the Hungarian girl gets, gets hanged here? Kind of no. There. Okay, so this is super subtle and not really up front in the movie. You kind of have to dig deeper for it. And and I sort of remember this from the first time I saw this years back, kind of forgotten while I was watching. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. There's something with her. So as they're telling their stories through through the song, each of them reenacts the murder with the red handkerchief. Okay. I'm doing hand motions here. Right. (laughs) Nothing for the podcast. Yeah. Like one of the guys, (laughs) like she's reenacting, he's bleeding from his mouth and she like pulls a red handkerchief out of his mouth. That's how they're, that's how they're reenacting it. They're not actually showing footage of the murders. Yeah, yeah. So, so they're using these. They're doing these visuals with the handkerchiefs, and there is the the one blonde woman, to the Hungarian, and she comes out for a number, which is completely in in Hungarian. It's not even in English. Now, as a master in translating Hungarian to English, I have. You have it. I have the transcript okay, of good. what she says here. Okay, so great. And this is going to be important for what I say next, but <laughs> here it is. And this is the this is our Hungarian. This will be the first time I'm hearing speaking. it. Okay. I have I've never had any idea what she's said. How so. did I find myself here? They say my famous lover held down my husband and I cut his head off, but it's not true. I'm innocent. I don't know why Uncle Sam says I did it. I tried to explain at the police station, but they did not understand. And again, I, I translated that hand to book from my Hungarian to English dictionary. Okay. Yeah. I Googled it. <laughs> Google translated uh, yes, nothing yeah, to do right. with that, is what you're saying. Uh, so, 
they all reenact the scenes with red handkerchiefs, except for her. Her handkerchief's white. Okay. So she's the only one that actually is innocent. Oh, okay. And she's the only one that's hanged. Wow. Too. So she actually represents, and she keeps trying to to go up to the lawyer. Please help me! I'm actually innocent, and no one understands her because so, she speaks another language, wow. and they're just disregarding her. So and she's the like, one that gets hanged. Yeah, so maybe, there's the because there's a deep commentary on immigration. Yeah, and the satire that and, into, yeah. <laughs> that you can't, the so courts are only kind to the people who speak English. Yeah, that's uh, that's I did not know that. Yeah, but I and, I, and I, when she does get hanged, they play some like uh, circus type. Music, the, mm-hmm. like the like uh, drums, like da, 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 which is very much what you would do in those like Eastern European circuses. Little little uh, told you, I'm not going to do the the problematic thing. Um, kind of hilariously over the line, offensive, and I'm going to apologize to if, if there's anyone of Eastern European descent who had has had family members in the circus. I apologize if that offended you, but it was kind of a amusing choice that they made. We got to We got to. Someone be being because- hanged. Is basically it's the music you would use when you have someone on a ladder about to jump into like one foot of water. Yeah, that's kind of the, the music <laughs> right. that they used. Right, like extraordinarily the, the, the old the old Disney cartoons. I, I and we do need to re- remind ourselves, Rob, that we do have listeners in Israel and New Zealand and overseas too. So okay, there's our, our, our stats coming in that so we, there may be those Eastern European people that are yeah shaking well, their love, fists. Love to their the Eastern devices. Europeans out there. We love you. Yes. Yeah, so that's so I I. Love that scene. And in that scene is uh, Maya, who yes. is also super hot and is, uh, you know, ghetto superstar yeah. with, with uh, what is Maya, that? Maya, like, I mean, one hit wonder. Uh, would we classify Maya as a one hit wonder? I remember the song Ghetto Superstar. Well, she's also in the Moulin Rouge with Pink okay. and so, Oh, she's, she's on that song. Yeah, so I'd say, yeah, so I'd say okay. there's like two major hits. But yeah, she didn't really have like a solo Tune. Yeah, you would have thought she would after. And the cell block tango never really climbed the Billboard charts, so I don't think <laughs> we can credit her on that one. We move on, and this interaction here in this kind of story arc with it's been done so much in movies here with the the established star and the young star who looks up to the established right. star, and the established star starts to age, and the young star is now mm-hmm. the star. It's Black Swan and All About right. Eve and right. a lot of those a, yeah. a lot of those types Classic of movies. Theme. So. That particular storyline kind of doesn't do a whole lot for me mm-hmm. in general, just because it's, it's kind of overdone. Right. Yeah, and I mean, in the context of this movie, it's it's not only, you know, the age thing, but it's also who's the new, like, murder suspect and, like, what did that crime entail? And every critic that reviewed this used the word uh, cynical. There's cynicism about show business, but also, like, the media just kind of chasing the latest story, like... You were the flavor of the week last week when you uh-huh. killed your husband. Renee Zellweger killed her husband last night. Now she's the new face. Yeah, the old 15 minutes of fame. Right. And it's showbiz, you know? That's, that's it's how also, it goes. And also like the cynical, just, just to stay on this theme for a second, the cynical take that it has on, you know, crime in Chicago in the 20s where the fact that you murdered a husband or your lover who had a family is not considered at all. It's just like, <laughs> wow. The face is in the paper. I got my face in the paper. Yeah. Or this person, this person's wild. Look at what they did. Like, I mean, I guess we kind of still do that. Things that come out, I like the, I don't know, Casey Anthony trial. That was a while ago at this point. But we kind of still do that with criminals a little bit. But like using a crime to further a showbiz career is a very cynical way to look at this. Versus now where if you're committing a crime, it's ending your showbiz career. 
I don't think that that happens anymore, which is probably a good development. But <laughs> I, would, um, I would agree. Uh, all right. So our next our next introduction via dramatic song is good old Richard Gere, and Richard Gere plays Billy Flynn. Billy Flynn. Billy Flynn. Yeah. Billy Flynn. And we get All I Care About Is Love. And we also get Miss Sunshine from the press. And Miss Sunshine right. is supposed to be the author who wrote this play originally, Maureen Dallas Watkins. She covered the trials for the press okay. and then wrote the play. So that's supposed to be her. Oh, it is. Yeah. Okay. And it's a real dialed down role. But the it's interesting that you know that's kind of who the author was because... That media member, like the media in general, is written as very flighty, very like easy to be manipulated, as we see later in, in the trial when Renee, Renee Zellweger like just reveals that she's pregnant. All of a sudden, the attention's back on her. Um, so she maybe is maybe the author was a little cynical about her own profession. Been adapted twice too, so I don't know yeah. what the what the nineteen twenties play is. I mean, she, I'm, she probably writes yeah, herself more. Fair point. I I would imagine that it's not like the media. A member as the hero in the first one. That's really interesting. That I didn't. I didn't know that she was. Um, you know, that was based on the author. Yeah, and, and we should mention too that this movie is actually the third film adaptation of this story. It's the first musical film adaptation, and then there were also six musical incarnations on stage for the play as well. So Chicago was done a lot here before this movie came out. This wasn't right. a new concept, and it was a movie they've been trying to make for years through the 80s and, and into the early 90s and never quite got the, got the right crew together until they, it, it hit in, in 2003. What would you think of uh, Richard Gere as Billy Flynn? I kind of like this song. You know, All I Care About Is Love is like he's just such a bullshit artist Yeah, yeah. Um, that it's almost kind of charming in some way. I don't know why they strip him at the end of the song. It's very odd. I, the whole <laughs> scene is very odd. Like I... I I was scratching my head this time around. Again, again, it's another catchy tune and kind of a. I like the like you said. It's kind of like the tongue in cheek with it, but it was just yeah. Film very, uh, film very odd. I don't know. Couldn't quite get my head around what the hell is going on in this right. in this scene here. But kind of and why choose that as the chorus? Like all I care about is love. Right. Which is neither thing that he pretends to care about justice, which he doesn't, and he really secret loves money. Uh-huh. And what does love have to do with? Either of those things. Yeah. It's not like he falls in love with his clients. He doesn't yeah. shit about his clients. I, I found that to be the most confusing, confusing scene. This so so Gear is, is good, you know, he's I like him, whatever he's in. He's kinda he's in a super hard to watch movie that came out the same year in Unfaithful. I haven't seen uh, that. Oh boy. Just... Yeah, you can skip it. I mean it's it's <laughs> it's very, you know, it's very kind of a bummer. But he's just kind of he's just kinda of always, you know, every time you see him on, on screen, he's he's fun to watch. Yeah. I, mean, uh, I I love uh, Primal Fear and I love uh, Pretty Woman. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a gear fan. Yeah. I'm a I, gear guy. <laughs> he's a gear guy. He's a gearhead. I've never been a huge Richard Gear fan, not because I don't like him, just because I really hadn't seen a lot of those movies. Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen Pretty Woman. Officer I didn't and see like Officer and Gentleman. I think he's he just always, for me, seemed like someone that your grandmother liked right, or something right. like that. What he, what was unexpected, though, um, as far as his performance in this movie, was that he, he really, his comic timing's really good. So he's got, I think, three lines here that were pretty like well executed as far as his time, comic timing go. If Jesus Christ had lived in Chicago and he had $5,000, things would have turned out for him differently. And, oh, and by the way, I'm butchering these lines. They're not in context. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, doll, you're going to believe what you see. Or what I tell you, and is she pregnant? Would you swear in court? Button your fly. 
<laughs> right, the moment that we should just give it to the doctor's office. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so um, Renee Zellweger like goes. They're trying to convince the the public that Renee Zellweger's character is pregnant, and we see her being examined, or so we think, in the medical office. And then the doctor comes out. Clearly, Roxy slept with him so that he would lie for her. And then that's what Richard Gere says: "Is she pregnant? Would you swear it in court? Button your fly. Your button your fly, doc." And and you know you mentioned the five thousand dollars, which was obviously the fee that he demanded yeah. up front. Now I would I would be remiss if I did not do Joey R respect because he would be all over this if he was on this. I had to do his work for him this one. So five thousand dollars in the twenties translates to sixty one thousand five hundred dollars in two thousand three. So okay. the, the gap in time okay. there was that. So that so it would be in in the early two thousands. Right. Charging sixty thousand up up front. So that's pretty good price to get you off a murder charge. I'm yeah, thinking. I would say so. I'm thinking Renee's, Renee Zellweger doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. Roxy probably doesn't have it, and her husband, who's uneducated guy in the twenties, probably not making a lot of money. Probably making fifty cents a day. Yeah, right. That and they're, well, then they have to basically like just autograph autograph all her stuff and yeah, like, auction yeah. it off. We go right into uh, and Flynn kind of takes over here and, and does his uh, his we reach for the gun. We both reach for the gun ventriloquist tune. Okay. <laughs> It's just... I thought that was the dumbest scene in the movie. I mean... The ventriloquist number, apparently... And this was a little bit, you know, a little bit uh, too bad because... You know, this is like one of Bob Fosse's, the choreographer's, like, things that made him famous. And apparently that number is, like, was added in 1975. So that's, like, not in any original stage version of this. And that was, like, considered to be really innovative. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm watching it thinking, you know, before I knew that, I'm watching the movie thinking like, oh, I guess maybe this was entertaining in the 20s because they didn't have anything else. And ventriloquism was like a real legitimate form of entertainment. And they're like, you're trying to convince, you're trying to convince your wife to go see this thing and be like, oh, well, there's a, there's a ventriloquist number in it. And like, she thinks, oh, well, that's ah, cute. we got a ventriloquist. <laughs> oh, well, that's cute and fun. Oh, darling, you pick out the, the, the greatest thing, little things for us to say. Um, in, tw- in 2020, ventriloquism isn't the hot item. <laughs> if, you take, if you take Jeff Dunham out of the equation, no one's really been into ventriloquism for 50 years. And I think Jeff Dunham has resorted to Performing for the kindergarten classes at this stage. <laughs> I think Jeff Dunham's pretty well off, honestly. I, you know, he, he was has in a, that, has... that Comedy Central, like, the boom. The Comedy Central boom is right in the heart of it. He but... has a theater, the Jeff Dunham Theater, in Vegas or something like that. God, what does he share with Carrot Top? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So I thought the ventriloquism. Yeah, and, and you know what? Like, so when I did the re, like, I, I watched and then I kind of watched it for the second time. Like, the cell block tango, like... I was like excited for it to come up again, yeah. and I like was glued to it and like watched it again, and even kind of rewound parts of it. This one, I just, I just hit fast forward. I, it's, it's like kind of like just it, it, with all the other stuff he said too. It's kind of just flat out annoying too. Yeah, like it's I, really I, annoying. It, it's just not. Yeah. I, I don't know if we're gonna blame it on on Richard Gere's voice or or the delivery. I mean, the acting is good in it, definitely, right. but Richard Gere's ventriloquist voice is really annoying. Yeah, it's also like kind of. Information. What you doing? <laughs> <laughs> When'd you get here? 1920. Um, but it's kind of information we already have. Like, we already know that they're going to build a personality for her to sell to the jury. Mm-hmm. And this is just repeating that in an annoying voice 
and her doing like weird movements. Like, yeah, and, and we, you know, we, accompl- we accomplished enough of that with the razzle dazzle piece a little later. Yeah, exactly. Too. But no, I, I, I gotta mention this because this blew my mind today. The, the Richard Gear part, and I'm not, I've, just, I've done this twice already today. I'm not, and, and you'll know from listening to these episodes, I don't go crazy with the who was originally cast and who might have been cast because like yeah. that, that stuff, you get like a whole long list of who would be cast. Right, right, right. But this is a, is a wacky one. They wanted Michael Jackson. <laughs> to, play, to play the Richard oh Gear God. part to the point where like he had agreed to do it or at least to, to try out for it right and Harvey Weinstein oh nixed it okay so time out yeah either we just entered another chapter of this podcast <laughs> so this was officially a Harvey Weinstein produced yeah movie. Uh, yeah, and okay. yeah he was he was in, in, in involved with, with Miramax and so alright let's take Miramax's this. highest grossing Film when it, when, when it came out. So let's take these things bit by bit. So yeah. I guess first, just like naming – today actually for anyone who listens to this podcast down the road months or years from now, yes. we're recording this on the day that Harvey Weinstein was just sentenced to 23 years in jail. 22 is, years, yeah. 20, which is probably the rest of his life, yeah. frankly. Yeah, well, he said he's like 67 or 68 um, right And he's now, in so he's, pretty bad shape. Yeah. Um, unless it's all an act, which it might be yeah, for the cameras. But anyway, he was just sentenced. So in this, in this like Oscar year – the best director was won by Roman Polanski, who's also accused of... <laughs> U.S. fugitive since 1975. Yeah, fled the country. The same year Chicago, the play, came out. <laughs> so Roman Polanski flees the country the year in, 17, in 1975 for being charged to be a pedophile. Right. We've got the movie produced by one of the serial rapists... Yeah. ...who, like, true sinister defined, character. like, gave rise to the Me Too movement. Yeah. And... A potential cast that didn't happen <laughs> is Michael Jackson, who's allegedly, 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 allegedly. also had some issues with, uh, you know, forcible sex and. and but couldn't you just see it. like Michael Jackson coming to try out Weinstein? Go, oh no no no! I'm the only deviant allowed on this project. <laughs> Why didn't Harvey Weinstein get Richard Gere to do the old razzle dazzle for his own trial? <laughs> <laughs> I guess, razzle dazzle I guess, I guess Sorry Harvey I guess you didn't have uh, Billy Flynn yeah, right. Still on the contract Yeah the old Razzle dazzle doesn't, Harvey doesn't you didn't have Five grand to give To Billy Flynn 1920 Razzle dazzle him 2020 uh, You're going 22 to years Yeah, yeah. But that, and it, and so it Could just, have And probably should have Been worse I think we need to do A disclaimer at this point We've made a few jokes here We both completely Seriously abhor what Harvey Weinstein did. Oh, we are did. not making we're light, not of, making what light of what he did. We, but we, we happen to be talking about we, Billy if, Flynn if, and if Harvey you, Weinstein, which is we're kind of, celebrating the sentencing. Is yes, really we're what's celebrating going Harvey Weinstein's sentencing. Now, I do want to go back to Michael Jackson for a second here, and again, <laughs> his his behavior, whether he did it or not, aside, as much as I enjoyed, as much as I enjoyed Richard Gere's tap dancing scene. Could you imagine what that scene would have been with Michael oh, Jackson? Boom, chaboon, chaboon, the steam and the blowing and the, I mean, like, like, kind of like in the center of the black and white music video yeah. where it just goes out and then he just does his whole thing. I mean, now that could have been cinema history right Yeah, there. like, it, it would have been amazing if you just had Michael Jackson obviously doing any dancing in the thing. But how do you do it and him not just overtake the movie? Which is what, which is you know what, what I mean? which is why he didn't get it. Right. Because they thought he'd distract. That was, that was the point from the camp. 
that didn't want him was that, that his presence in the movie would distract from the entire film and it would all be about him and it would ruin the project. And it probably might have. But if he nailed it, could you imagine Michael Jackson getting an Oscar for, for Best Supporting Actor? <laughs> that would have been amazing. Uh, and, and, the, and also kind of crazy thing is Michael Jackson's style or it mirrors kind of the Chicago style. Because mm-hmm. Michael Jackson always has fedoras on yep. and like is you know, doing this tough guy thing. And yeah, it would have been like way too close to home. Yeah. You, to just essentially it's Chicago but with a Michael Jackson performance in it <laughs> versus Michael Jackson playing <laughs> Billy Flynn. Oh boy. Yeah, so that I think that rattled us right off the rails here. We got to get back. I, I think we were cheated, to be honest. I think we were cheated from a great Michael Jackson moment in film. One thing that kind of when we were talking about this project and this project being this podcast on Chicago, you kind of brought up the some reading and, and you were looking to the, the idea that, there, that Hollywood was kind of trying to push the musical and get the musical back into right. the forefront here with this. Moulin Rouge comes out a couple years prior yeah. to this. And then there's kind of a, uh, an array of musicals that come out afterward. Right. So I think it would be useful to just kind of illustrate all of the musicals that came after this. And I think that you you have this in Hollywood and, you know, you have it elsewhere in in business where something works unexpectedly Mm -hmm. and then you just kind of run with that as much as you possibly can. Moulin Rouge was actually before this. It was in 2001. And then this uh, comes out the same year as 8 Mile, which kind of goes back to our category on what's a musical and what's not. Yeah. Um, Wow, I didn't even think about that one. So kind of like very music-forward movie. We can, you know, you can debate forever if it's a a musical or not. Yeah, Hustle Um, and Flow would be another one that that comes out a couple years later. But then after this wins uh, Best Picture, I think the the way is kind of paved for the other studios to really start putting money into musicals. Mm -hmm. And then you have Phantom of the Opera, The Producers, Rent, Dreamgirls, Hairspray, Sweeney Todd, Mamma Mia, uh, Nine, which is kind of bogus one. It's one of Daniel Day-Lewis' That's the Daniel Day-Lewis bus. Least celebrated uh, movies. Also directed by Rob Marshall, I believe. Oh, was Same it? Same director of Chicago. So, Mamma Mia, Nine, Les Miserables, Rock of Ages, Last Five Years, Into the Woods, and Cats are all made in, you know, that's, that covers a long period of time. Cats was, I think, last year. It's just a resurgence of musicals being made into movies. And like you were discussing before, with the other uh, musicals that won Best Picture, you had a lot of that in the fifties and sixties, and probably even before then. With like, yeah, the sixties you know, like, was the was the total uh, musical. And that was a big place. like Hollywood thing. Like, could you be, could you make it in Hollywood if you weren't like a song and dance band? Like, you couldn't even, yeah. you wouldn't even like get a shot. You wouldn't get an agent if you couldn't sing and dance like way back in the day. But anyway, it, it's funny too that it, you, you as you went through that list, really only Dream Girls on that list got any Oscar attention after right. that. As it pertains to like fan of the, of the opera producers rent, which I, um, enj- I enjoy that hairspray Sweeney Todd, like those kind of, of, uh, movie, movie musicals. I think those are just specifically geared towards people who like Broadway musicals. Yeah. A couple of seconds on Rob Marshall, who was directed. This one was nominated for best director and then does not win. Roman Polanski, as, as mentioned before, wins that award. Obviously can't attend the award show because he's a U.S. fugitive. Rob Marshall did, like, not a whole lot after this. He did Into the Woods, another musical that, that was Meryl Streep is in that and nominated, I think. He does Nine, which you brought up, which is kind of like the bust of Daniel Day-Lewis's career and the head-scratcher. And then he most recently did Mary Poppins Returns in 2018, but he's kind of just like, I guess he's just the musical guy, you know? He just does them when they pop up. And he's going to do The Little Mermaid. 
one that's coming up, a live action Little Mermaid. Okay. So we'll see if that gets him. Was he? Uh, I'd be curious to know if he was a Broadway director before he got into this. Uh, this was his. This was his film theatrical debut. Okay. All right. So he did some choreography, and then he was doing the choreography for Annie D- uh, Disney's. You know, Disney does those Sunday night movies. Walt Disney represents, and it's like okay. a Sunday night movie. And he did the Annie for that. He did the choreography for that and directed. And then they pulled him into into this project from there. And this was his his right. theatrical debut. Well, it's a specialty in, in and of itself. So yeah, that's what he does. So maybe Little Mermaid will get him back to the Promised Land. But so <laughs> so with that like array of musicals there, what is it that a musical gets the attention of the Academy and a comedy doesn't? Because if I'm if okay. I'm going to list the comedies that have won, I mean, you can count them on your left hand. Annie Hall okay. is one. And then right. a lot of the others are kind of like hybrid comedies that are sort of drum dramedies, if you will. Right. Why does like a, why does a, a musical kind of almost, if it's like this big production, get that quick look for a nominee? And then a comedy, it's almost like they scoff a little bit yeah. at a comedy. Yeah, I mean, I guess they are, in, in, you know, I think Robin Williams once said that comedy is like intentionally at the kiddie table. Like you're, you're not taking yourself too seriously. If you're doing a musical, like you have to execute the music and the singing and the dancing. Like that's all takes a lot of skill to do. And maybe this might be one of those just like obnoxious, erudite, you know, things where the Academy looks down their noses at um, comedies. Because, I don't know, a lot of comedies you'll have... You know, a lot of immature humor going on, or they, they tend to not really have great plots. Like, the, the beginnings of most comedies are a lot more fun than when they, like, just try to wrap it up quickly. Yeah. Game. I'm thinking yeah. about, like, old school or something Well, like yeah, that. Anchorman for me is, yeah. like, the, 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 the plot arc of that is literally like a panda giving birth. But, like, <laughs> I, but I can make the argument that it's harder to make a successful movie out of a movie that has a ridiculous plot right. than it is... A Titanic, if you have the if you have the, the technology to do yeah. so, or a movie like Lincoln, like right. Right, everything's right yeah. there for you to do. All you need is the performances. You could definitely argue that you know coming up with a funny movie or like executing a joke is harder, as harder if not harder than doing Chicago or like doing a musical like this. First of all, like the script's already written; mm-hmm. you, they're remaking something that was on Broadway. Like if you're coming up with an original premise that's actually funny that you can sustain for two hours it's pretty difficult yeah and now i think there's something to be said to the dancing and the choreography especially I mean, there's some wild choreography in this movie like I don't, I don't know like i've i've sung in front of audiences before and i think singing you either got a can do or you can't do whether you're good at it or you're, or you're not and to me i don't really think much about it but i'm pretty sure i couldn't fucking dance like that in front of, <laughs> in front of an audience or even film like yeah. if you give me a month to practice some of those scenes, I, I mean, I could maybe like get by in the background, but I, I don't know. I could be like a lead. You've acted before, and you've uh, you've done like you've done like improv before. Have you done a musical before? Yeah. Right. So what what is the experience of the two? What what, what you feel more pressure in doing? And so I never had big roles in musicals because I really can't sing very okay. well. Um, I wasn't a trained singer. I I, don't, I can't really. I'm slightly tone deaf. So if I was doing something, I was basically. Uh, trying not to be flat, you know, vocally and just kind of survive in, in dance area. Yeah. I would usually 
go out for like the comic relief character in those productions. I've also yeah, I've done some improv. Yeah, it's it's way harder doing comedy. Yeah, because you don't know what you don't know if it's going to stick way or not. If, if, if you can really sing and you and you you know you can nail the notes, you know yeah. what you're doing. But comedy, you might go out there and nail it. No one laughs. What I think you, uh, it was Colin Quinn had talked about like doing a performance at one of these theaters in Midtown in, in Manhattan, and like you have pictures of all the other uh, productions that have been there. Something like this, Chicago, like Man of La Mancha with like 50 people in costumes. And he's like, I'm just walking out there with me in a shirt and my jeans. <laughs> right. Like, and right. That, and you have, so you have to carry the attention of the of crowded theater of 2,000 people for an hour and 15 minutes as a comedian just with your, you know, just with you versus all of this other pomp and circumstance that musicals can rely on. Yeah. Maybe that's something that hopefully changes in the future, but like just to disregard comedy is maybe maybe a big blind spot that the Oscars yeah, haven't realized yet. Yeah, I think yet. so for sure. And why can't we look at a movie like Step Brothers to tie John C. Riley back into this mm -hmm. right. and see how ridiculous of an idea that movie is and how excellent the execution is? Yeah. Yeah, why, why can't we do that? And one of the things about... There's uh, no plot to that movie. There is no plot to that movie. <laughs> one of the things about the Adam McKay, Will Ferrell movies is that, you know, Step Brothers and definitely Anchorman, I remember talking to a lot of people, people who just didn't get it when the movie came out. Like, they were like, yeah, that was stupid. It didn't make any sense. Or, you know, Anchorman, they're just, you know, they laughed at something that was just thrown out there for the lowest common denominator. So they're actually making comedies ahead of where the audience is. Yeah. And then the audience is catching up to it, which artistically is maybe more of an accomplishment than anything done when you're just remaking, you know, Mamma Mia. God, 1,000%. Like 1,000%. Even we're talking about Chicago. We're talking about a movie. There's been six Broadway incarnations. The story's been told many times. Whereas we're going to the San Diego Zoo and a panda's giving birth and <laughs> all the media. And I'll admit that when I first watched Anchorman, I was, what the hell is this? What's it? Right. Because you're following the plot and you're right. trying to figure out. And then the 20th time you watch it, it's the funniest thing you've ever seen right. because, you, you, like you said, they're right. so much further ahead of the audience. Yeah, and you slowly get, oh, wait a minute. This is really funny because look at how these guys used to act in the 70s. And yeah. they're, like, making a comment on, like, they're, you know, obviously they're not, like, doing it in an annoying way, which is, like, when people complain on Twitter. But they're making fun of how egregious people actually really used to be. Yeah. You know, in, in, in you know, 30 years ago or whatever. And in Step Brothers, you just have two guys that are 40 years old living and acting like they're 13. And the first time you see it, you're like, what the hell is this? And maybe you laugh at Will Ferrell putting his nuts on the drum set because, <laughs> you know, that's what you laugh at the first time around. And then the next few times you see it, all of a sudden you're quoting that movie to your friends for the next 10 years. Yeah, right. Yeah. What, what do you do for a living, Dale? I manage a baseball team. <laughs> oh, like like uh, little league? Oh, no, fantasy, fantasy baseball. League. Uh, fantasy yeah. league. Uh, and Thank I you, think Mr. it's Dobak. Don't call me Mr. Dobak. Thank you, Dobak. Dobak. <laughs> I I don't think it's a surprise that you're now seeing in 2018 Peter Farrelly getting okay. nominated for best director for Green Book, and then this past year, 2019, Todd Phillips, mm -hmm. Joker for the Joker, Adam McKay for uh, Vice. The sort of Vice, Dick Cheney yep, yep. and uh, the, the financial one. You're seeing these guys kind of take a different note and then getting rewarded Well, for we've it. also gotten way more sensitive to comedies. Right. And someone was saying, like, when Todd Phillips is doing Joker, 
you know that something is wrong with comedy. Yeah, but the proof is in the pudding, though, that these guys are Incredibly intelligent talented. directors, yeah. and they do have a vision that can be put into the Academy scope. But why is the Academy scope neglecting these types of movies? Why isn't a Groundhog Day a movie that, that could have right. been nominated? Why isn't Ghostbusters a movie that could have been nominated for Best Picture? Yeah. And those movies are, are a little more 80s, early 90s plot-driven movies. Even a Back to the Future, you know, it, it, there's, there's something, there is a stench to these comedies that, that repels the Academy. And if we go back to the question that we brought up in the beginning of this podcast as does it need to be an epic or about an important topic mm -hmm. to be in this mix? I look at that and say, God, it shouldn't be. Right. It shouldn't yeah. be. And one of the kind of, I guess side effects of this kind of policy of snubbing comedies is when these comedic directors go on and do more serious movies, you have better comic relief in those movies than you would normally have. So like Adam McKay doing the big short mm -hmm. and like he makes Ryan Gosling hilarious in that movie. Yeah. But it's about the abuses that led to the financial crisis, which is an incredibly important topic. Yeah. Adam McKay is clearly really passionate about it. He's done a few movies about it. You get better, you get better comic relief than you would have in a Oscar-worthy movie when a comedic director is doing it. Yeah. Granted, you want to see them be nominated for the stuff that's their bread and butter as well. Yeah. How'd you like Jeremy Renner in the big short? Jeremy Renner. <laughs> <laughs> was in the movie. Oh, oh, oh! How could I make that mistake? <laughs> was that is that an inside joke from Best, Best Picture cast? Oh, it's just a, that's just an Artie B shot. Oh, okay, yeah. I hope that we get to a time where maybe comedies get a little more respect here with this, and at least these directors of these films are now getting recognized with with some other works. And did you see Joker? By the way, yeah, yeah. What did you think of the Joker? I thought it was great. I yeah. loved doing that much time on a villain. Mm -hmm. The villains are. Especially in the last like 10, 15 years where you've really tried to make the villain in a lot of these movies have like kind of a legit gripe. Mm -hmm. They become more interesting. And to do a full movie on one, I thought it was really cool. And to show someone going from like, you know, I, I think this is how if you kind of get into people that commit crimes and stuff like that, like people don't start out as bad people. They like get into, you know, for the most part, they get into bad circumstances or they have mental health issues and then they're also exposed to you know bad things or they um for some reason look up to you know if you're in a, a disadvantaged area you look up to someone who is doing bad things and all of a sudden like just out of your survival instinct you start to model that behavior so to look at someone going from just kind of a troubled troubled person to like a megalomaniac yeah. who's terrorizing a city and showing how it went there um the, the whole take that the you know the backlash had of we shouldn't like glamorize this the movie's not about glamorizing terrorizing a city no the movie's about that character and how he got there yeah and that's that was super interesting to explore and also like the you know the, the cinematography the how it was stylized the the whole the, the Joaquin Phoenix's performance was unbelievable I don't necessarily uh, am not on board with him with his cow stuff at his uh, Academy Award <laughs> nomination. Did you hear Brad Pitt walk by him in mood in the after Did party? He? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whole new level of respect for Brad Pitt. <laughs> to use that and to see a movie like that where 
the movie exists in this guy's mind and you're, you're, yeah. you're trapped inside this mind when you watch a movie. And to tie that back into Chicago is that is how this project got ultimately picked up is because Rob Marshall pitched it to the crew that we want this to be a musical that exists inside Roxy Reynolds and yeah. Zilber's mind. That definitely which is, came through. It is a cool concept. And looking back on it, like I liked that a little more and I appreciate some of the subtleties that this movie uses because that's not necessarily something that you pull out right away when you see it. And then like, if you, if you look in like that, the whole thing of in this, the cell block tango with the, with the Hungarian singer, it, I, I do appreciate those subtleties. I will say though, I think that like the whole musical inside her head, like, I wish they would have played in that world a little deeper, which is why I think that if it came out today, it would have been a shade, the whole movie could have been a shade darker, mm-hmm. could have gone the rated R route, right. and this really could have kind of been a little more of a trippy, kind of intense affair. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that like they, they delivered the musical inside her head, but they kind of did it in a little bit of a tame way. Yeah, I saw that concept at, at, at play, but... It was very subtle. Like, you could have done more. Yeah. Done more than... Not made it more, like, obvious, but just just made it more... There could have been a lot more ground to cover. Because this is someone who's envious of being famous and has, has like, uh, these delusional thoughts. Like, uh, delusions of grandeur. You could have done more with that. Yeah, and and subtlety is great, but there's there's subtlety to the the point where it's tame. And Mm -hmm. I thought that this was a little tame. I thought they could have... You could have easily missed it. Yeah, they could. They could have. They could have dug deeper into that world and gave us, gave us something a little more psychotic. You know, I, I thought. You know, but hey, maybe that's just. My taste. It's just you know that's this is eighteen years ago. I think we have more of a uh, appetite for that kind of stuff yeah. now. Yeah, more, that's, more that's realism, more grit. So we move along to to these next two pieces where it's just you know you get you get Roxy singing a song called Roxy, and then you get. Velma singing a song called I Can't Do It Alone, and they're just kind of just singing to sing. I kind of got nothing out of either of those two. Well, I mean, the Roxy song is just the absolute percent, like uh, manifestation of what she wants her stardom to be. Yeah. Um, but the song itself is just not that exciting. Yeah, I got, I got, I, you know, I saw it twice in the, twice in the last... 48 hours and I don't remember That's anything not, about it. Neither, <laughs> yeah, so neither kind of, of those two songs are that memorable. No, they, they the only, I mean, the bright been. spot there at this part of the, the, the movie is Catherine Zeta-Jones' big dance number is I couldn't, I can't do it alone. Like when she's trying to convince Roxy. Yeah. Um, and by the way, we're officially at the point in the podcast where I'm not even going to try to pronounce Renee Z's name anymore. Oh, you have an issue pronouncing Renee Zellberg's I, name. I don't, I don't think that I did three Lagunitas ago, but, <laughs> but I have an issue now. <laughs> Um, so I'm just gonna stick wow, to Roxy. Wow, this is good. You see, you know, you're you're getting sharper and keen where Artie B and Brendan B may not have, may not have. So, but especially now with the knowledge that she did that dance number pregnant is really even more impressive. She looks great throughout this whole movie, and yeah. and her dancing is is killer. The fact she insisted on doing it all herself, like I, I can I can totally get behind her getting this best supporting actress award. I thought she did a lot of work to get there, and I thought she did it. Whereas the other two that were nominated for supporting roles, John C. Riley and Queen Latifah, I think that there there was a little bit left to be desired in both of those mm-hmm. roles, as far as the acting standpoint went. Yeah, and I've, I've got some more thoughts on Catherine Zeta's Oscar, but I'm, I'm going to save that for the uh, one of the later categories. Okay, okay. And then what about Renee Zellweger's nomination too? I mean, 
I don't think that needed to go much further than a nomination. I mean, it was she's fine, she's good in this, she's strong yeah. in this, but yeah, no, yeah. I think that it's a yeah, fine for her being nominated at, at this point in her career. She is on fire. Like she's yeah. one of the most. I think three well, years in a row she's nominated. Th- yeah, that, is that is that right? I mean, she just goes on a, like a five year run. Yeah, there's Bridges Jones Diary, and then also Cold Mountain. I want to say is in yeah. part of that one. Those are the three movies. Uh, so we get so we meet Lucy Liu, who kind of just pops in, and she's gonna be a candidate a little later here in one of these categories for me. Honestly, dude, I feel like she's trying to act like the other people in this movie in the few lines that she gets. You know, I feel like she's putting on a voice and mm. she's, you know, again, super beautiful and, and, and sexy like a lot of these, the women are in this movie. But right. she's a character used as a device in sparking yeah, Renee Zellweger into is, doing the pregnancy and all that. Right. So this is where, you know, Roxy has this new fame and she just loses it at the drop of a hat because you it's have another murder trial. Lucy Liu's playing this rich heiress. So that's even a juicier story for the media. Mm-hmm. Once again, media being really, you know, flighty, uh, flippant kind of thing. She uses some real ingenu- ingenuity here to get the spotlight back on yeah. her and basically saying that she's pregnant and about to be on a murder trial. Yeah. So this was actually the only plot point in the movie that was unexpected for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I just maybe forgot it from seeing the musical, but as far as we've talked about the story being like a little bit childish, this is the only point where something unexpected uh, comes out and it's like, oh, that, that was a pretty yeah, genius nice turn there. Yeah. And, um, but a little bit of a small role for Lucy Liu. I don't know if this is because she got more famous after this movie, but she basically doesn't really have any lines. She looks great in the few scenes that she's in, yeah. but really kind of not a lot for her to do. Yeah, kind of put in, in the same uh, ilk as, as Maya was. Right. Do you need a famous person in that role? Or could have just been been an unknown. Yeah, I I I think that they liked the idea. The ensemble guess. I, I have to look at this, as to how famous Lucy Liu was at this point, and I want to say it's before Charlie's Angels. Charles, this is, so Charlie's Angels comes this out. This is only 2000. a year before Kill Bill. So I'm, I was I, I thought it was more than that. Charlie's Angels comes out in the year two thousand. So this is right after Charlie's Angels. Then. And yeah, then so she is the, a star at this point. Yeah, so she is, and she was always like more famous maybe than. Her acting roles warranted. Yeah. It's not like she won an Oscar and she was an unknown. Like she was in one or two movies, and I think you know she's kind of a household name out of nowhere. Yeah, well, she was. I mean, she's she, as far as representing Asian women in film. I mean, she was right. you know kind of at, at the top of. Well, of course, you know that's we all know that's that's very important. But I think that she was just really good at being famous. Yeah, she has a name yeah. that's very memorable. Yeah, Lucy beautiful Liu, too. That yeah, helps. and really beautiful. Yeah, so it's an interesting choice to put a really famous actress in that role in this. In I this do musical. think, I do think this though. In order to make that character work within the plot point, you need more than just a beautiful young girl because we've had beautiful young girls in this movie. It kind of has to be someone that packs okay. a punch. Yeah, so I'd say, character. you know, someone that's going to really get the cameras to turn, putting in a name who's not necessarily a prolific actress. Right. So you don't need – having her face in there is probably worth more than having her do a giant monologue. Right. Okay. So you kind of put something in the audience's head. The, like the, the premise of that scene is Roxy loses the spotlight to this person. And you're saying that putting a famous person in that role helps the audience believe that, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, this that, is that, why that's someone who will pull okay, the camera. Right, okay. okay, that's a fair take. Yeah, and her Respect her accent take. I thought was just over the, in the few lines that she had was just a, oh come on, I did it. <laughs> it just seemed like she was trying to fit in with the other people in this movie, right, and it right. was just you know a little a little too roaring twenties for me. We now get into into Mr. Cellophane here. There's two sides to this for me. I want to look at maybe what might be one of the more. This, this is obviously an excellent scene. It, it's it's a cool catchy song. Mm-hmm. I think that this was probably what stuck out the most for me when I was like, before I watched it this week, what I remembered about this movie was Mr. Cellophane. That's what like, that's the, that's the scene that I remembered the most. I was excited to get to it. I enjoyed watching it. Like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, it's a cool song. It's a cool performance of the song. Yeah. Like I said earlier, definitely a catchy song and a memorable song. It sticks in your head. I don't really understand the metaphor of cellophane and being a pushover. I know it's like a little flimsy, but he says like, you can see right through me. Like he's not really hiding anything. He's just plainly an idiot who doesn't understand anything. Right, yeah. So I don't really understand the metaphor, but yeah, I mean, it's it's the song stuck in my head. I was still singing it. Yeah, that's great. The, the, the that's great. Now, I, 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 the one issue I have, and this is a little nitpicky, but if we're gonna go full force into this musical inside Renee Zellweger's head, this particular scene doesn't really make any sense. You know, why would he be singing a song about the fact that she doesn't notice him? Mm-hmm. In theory, she wouldn't notice enough to have this musical scene going on in her head. Right, so, like, right, it's right, kind of right, out right. of context with what they're trying to deliver the movie. I, she, I mean, she clearly doesn't respect him she sings about him early in the movie like he's whatever i'm sorry i forget the name of that song funny honey funny honey but yeah you wouldn't if it's all in her head you wouldn't have how he's really feeling about all this yeah granted it's a musical and they got to give every principal a song right and and, and maybe the whole movie doesn't have to exist within her head like like where the joker does but let's see we really like this really like the scene in the movie this didn't stick out for me that much but really yeah yeah, I, I just it just it's it's funny how like with a lot of these like I watched all of these movies on, on this list of ninety two, but I don't necessarily remember them all very well, mm-hmm. you know, because some of them I saw ten years ago. So right. some of them just certain scenes poke out to me. Like even like we, we did the crash episode of, uh, a few episodes yeah. ago, and like I didn't remember every scene in that movie. There were some right. I was like I was watching for the first time, but then there were other scenes like like the Matt Dillon scene where he pulls over the. The couple and, and yeah. accosts them, you know, that I remember tough, tough crystal clear. Yeah, it's yeah. tough to forget that. For whatever reason, this scene I just remembered perfectly. Whereas the cell block tango, once I saw it, I went, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I loved this, yeah. you know, but it didn't necessarily stay with me at yeah. that time. And I think that's just that's just a product of how you're watching it, when the, you're watching it. The visual part of the scene of, of John C. Riley being a clown kind of fell into the bucket of antiquated like 1920s stuff that I just mm-hmm. kind of felt like was a little creepy. Like yeah. the same thing with the ventriloquist. Yeah. Like him doing the clown stuff. I'm like, okay, I get it. Right. Like I, was, I was he, ready for it to be over. Yeah, apparently he insisted on that too, The that it, he'd be a clown and that he put the makeup on. That was Because okay. he's got this weird fascination with clowns apparently. So Oh, that's a John C. Riley well, thing. That's a thing. That is a okay. thing. Wow. Yeah. Okay, wow. So he, he, I did not know that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that John C. Riley got to um, exercise that, that part of his... <laughs> Self that he was <laughs> that was trapped in there. He should have had him play Pennywise in the new it. <laughs> I think. He well, he already, he already he already processed whatever was he was working uh, yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. I think he would have made a, a killer <laughs> killer Pennywise. Yeah. So there's Mr. Cellophane, and 
I mean, I, I think if that scene's not in it, he doesn't get the, the nomination, but that's just my opinion. Well, yeah. We then get our hanging scene, which is where we kind of get that, like, you know, Roxy's rejecting the lawyer. I don't need a lawyer. I don't need a lawyer. And then, her, you know, her cellmate gets, gets hung and she goes, okay, let's make up. Uh, it's, time to, <laughs> it's time to get a, a high-powered lawyer again because that wasn't so fun. We move toward the trial scene and we get our razzle-dazzle, which is his... His big, uh, his big tap dance, mm-hmm. which we wish was Michael Jackson, but we, we get a, a Richard <laughs> Gere tap dance instead. I kind of, I, I kind of dug this scene. Turning a trial into like a tap dance was kind of a, a nice little. That's a, that's a yeah. perfect metaphor for Billy Flynn. Yep, tap dancing around, and I think they explicitly say it too. Like watch, like watch what he does. Yeah, he's gonna tap dance around the jury, and then then he literally does it. One of the interesting things though about the trial I was thinking about, and this is kind of a theme that runs throughout the whole movie is that this is when they actually, she tells the jury or she makes her case for who she is, and it's a complete lie. Mm-hmm. And this is something, one of the things, when I think about like the 20s or way back in the day before we had all this technology and before like law enforcement had this technology where you could just get away with so much more than you can now, including just making up a story when you're on trial for murder. Yeah. If you were on trial for murder now, you can't just make up that you came from somewhere and you were like in a convent and you were like, you know, had this bad childhood and you were uh, like taken advantage of and all this stuff. Like they fully fabricate a personality. That's not happening in, in 2020 where you have everyone's information, you know, every, you know, big tech firm knows, has all the pictures from your whole life, knows where you are. You're just not getting away with that. And there's a little bit of that mystique to that era where if you're A, going to try to kill someone. Or B, if you're on trial and you can just make up your life story. I can't even picture being in that era. The justice system, too. <laughs> the right, way yeah. it's evolved in, in 100 years is just yeah. staggering. And uh, you know, obviously for, for the better. But right. you it's, think about what is it going to be like 100 years from now. It would be like Minority Report. Where yeah. <laughs> you can't even think something without getting arrested. You know? like, right. it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty wild. And, and one of the interesting kind of facts about what you, you brought up with about her being raised in the nunnery and all the things yeah. he told, the backstory that he told her to make up for the bread. That, where that kind of came from within the play is like those were all cliched things that young actresses in the 20s and the early part of the 1900s would say about themselves on their resume to try to get hired and get roles into, into films. And it got to the point where it became so cliched that if you put any of those things in your resume, you wouldn't get a role because everyone knew what you were doing. Wow. Okay. So, they, so they, they wrote that into the So I guess what the was play. the intention there? To like, I think it's kind of like... Across as like this pure, like innocent, like uh, person to play the ingenue in, or like, you know, if you're going to be in Wizard of Oz, like you want to be like this pure, like little girl and like that's what they were looking for. Yeah. yeah they're like, looking, oh yeah, I was raised in a nunnery. I and, came out of, uh, yeah. you know, I came out of the... The farmlands, like it, like okay. Carrie Underwood, and now I'm a star. You know, like it, it, we get to the to the finale here as we as we kind of close it up. We we end with this very lengthy nowadays song, which was kind of starts as her her being Rizel Wigner. Well, there we go. I'm yeah, trying to pronounce yeah. it. There, look at that. Look at that. You were you were ahead cross, of me on the you're ahead the of the threshold. curve. Roxy was was. <laughs> was trying to perform this song solo and not getting anywhere. And that's where you kind of got the, the transformation of her doing this big, and now it's just her in a room with two guys that are exiting early and kind of, and it's a nice song again, another catchy song, another kind of. Is this the finale? When this is the finale, yeah. Okay, this is yeah. After, she's free, 
she's free. She realizes that you know being free isn't doesn't gonna bring her the stardom that right. she thought it was. Right. She doesn't go back to to poor old Amos, Mr. Cellophane, <laughs> and she's just on her own and struggling to get by. And then she and then the logic is like Zeta Jones sells her on this that they can do a show as a duet. Yeah, because they like one, like you know, page six murder uh, acquitted person is not going to sell out uh, a theater, but if they go together, they can do it. And the one of the one of the things that caught me about this is like I drew a parallel to the end of. The producers when they they finally make up and they yeah. do like a song, yeah. but that is that show is all about that relationship yeah. that Max and Leo. This is they're kind of they kind of like bump into each other a few times. This is not really about the relationship between Velma and Roxy. They just kind of like conveniently need each other at the end. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's a fun song and especially in the movie, I think they shot it in a really cool way. Yep, like it's it's it, visually it went to a crescendo too. Yeah. you know it visually it looks it looks really cool, but on the theme of this show not really being that emotionally impactful. Like, there's no, like, big reconciliation here where you're so happy that they were able to work things out and work together. Because, like, they didn't really have a relationship to speak of yeah, at any yeah. point. Other than, other than one was a star, then one became the yeah. star pushover. One was jealous of one, one was, at one yeah, point. Yeah, the same old, yeah. old story that I told you earlier. I just it doesn't really interest me very much. But the cool part of, of Catherine Zeta-Jones' character's arc is, is that in the opening scene of this movie... She kills her sister, who's her partner in a duet, right. to get the spotlight. And then she goes through her trials and tribulations, only in the end to pull a partner in to end with right. a duet. So that, you know, that's cut. There's some nice symmetry there. Yeah. We're now in that old home stretch, as we <laughs> like to say here on BPC. So this is the first musical we covered, and I think we're going to kind of learn as we go how we, we react to these, these 10 musicals as Amadeus has not been BPC certified as <laughs> musical. And, and Brendan B., my brother who did the Shakespeare in Love episode, uh, he also, another, another big Amadeus fan who adamantly said via text today that it is not a musical. So basically, if someone is searching for podcasts about musical best picture winners and they were looking for Amadeus that's not the way to find it no they're going to hear us talk about how it's not a musical so that might <laughs> upset them but if you have an opinion on that as to whether it's a musical or not we'll probably throw a poll out this week on Twitter just to see what try the to world convince thinks. us that it's a musical yes is it a musical try. is it not a musical or agree Do with your us best. you know Twitter is best picture cast so it's at best picture cast Get us on there. Interact with us. We always love that. So we're going to go through our, our Best Picture Cast Awards here. MVP in this one. This is – so we're, we're going to do MVP. We're going to do LVP. Instead of scene of the movie, I just think it would make more sense to just kind of do song of the movie here. Mm-hmm. I think it's songs and scenes are, are one and the same here. Bobcat, what do you think about MVP? Who's, who, who's taking it home for you? MVP is a clear, easy choice for me. I think it's Catherine Zeta-Jones. She obviously won the Best the Best Supporting Actress Award. One of the things I really admire is when she is a leading actress. Like, any, any movie she'd been in, she is the ingenue, she's the um, main le- leading female role. And she steps into a supporting role and absolutely kills it. A great performance technically, like her singing or dancing. She is obviously very beautiful in the role and has that movie star charisma and, like, that confidence dialed up to a thousand. And she nails some of the kind of like uh, comedic timing lines. And, you know, honestly, it's a musical, and she's the best-trained singer and dancer. 
Yeah. So it's, you know, that kind of is, uh, is an easy one for me, the MVP. Yeah, I'm going to not combat you on this one. I think that this one is pretty straightforward, too. This is, this is a heavy-hitting performance as far as technique goes, the choreography, the singing. She radiates on screen. So Catherine Zeta-Jones, John C. Riley, and... Queen Latifah, this is all their only nominee, so the only one that she's nominated for. And Catherine Zeta-Jones is one for one. Two episodes ago, we talked about Shakespeare in Love. We discussed Gwyneth Paltrow, who's also one for one, was never nominated again. That was her only nomination and, and, and her win, and we agreed with that one that she was the MVP in that film as well. I, I, I think that, like you said, this is a pretty, this is a pretty, easy, pretty easy, easy one. Easy one. And, and throw the fact on that she's a couple months pregnant is just, <laughs> you know, it's just wild. Now, LVP, which is always a little trickier, sometimes it's because there's a, a giant car wreck or a crash wreck, you might say, and there's a lot of people <laughs> to pick from. And then other times it's like, you know, we one flew the cuckoo's nest, it's like, geez, this movie's close to damn perfect. Who, how do you pick an LVP in this? I, I'll go first on this one, okay. if you don't mind, because this one, I think I had a... A couple thoughts on this, and I thought maybe from an acting standpoint, Lucy Liu was a, was an, an option for me. But I'm I'm gonna go with Ms. Sunshine. It's a little bit of an obscure character to pick. I think that the the reason that I'm gonna go with that is because of her importance in the initial conception of this project back when it was first made. It's a first person tale from the author's experience with these two trials, and that's supposed to be the author's character. And it just gets lost in the shuffle here. I, I don't really get any kind of real impact that this character made. Uh, the acting performance isn't there. I don't mean to crush Christine Baranski's acting specifically, because I think she does an okay job of what she's given. Mm -hmm. It could have been a more important part to what this story was and what the story needs, need, needed to be. It just, it, it fell a little short for me. So I think that the, the actress actually fits the time frame really well. She kind of does yeah, that, just like, kind of like someone from, the, from this era. Christine Baranski, uh, is, I think she fits really well into it. And I guess maybe the role itself, uh, I, maybe I, I can agree that it's not as valuable to the, to the story. But, but I mean... Where it should have been is my point. It should have and could have been used to be way more impactful and really kind of make this plot a little more dynamic and I thought they just they just passed on it. And knowing, reading a little bit about the history of this project and what it was, and what it was conceived as, I, I, I there was a little bit to be desired. Okay, so I'll agree with you in that. Um, like one of the one of the reasons this story I think is a little childish is that it's just so ridiculous. Sunshine is kind of representing the media or representing the outside world, and she is so gullible and doesn't hold anyone to task ever. That it's just written in a way that, you know, there's no, like, grounding in reality for this. And I know it's a musical. I know it's a Broadway musical. Like, we're, we, this is escapism. It's supposed to just be, you know, you're not supposed to think too much about it. But yeah. that role is, like you said, not impactful at all. I, I will say this, and not to, not to cut you off, but I'll say this. If it was a pressed savior piece, it would have annoyed me way more. So, like, you know, like Spotlight. But, like, okay. uh, but like so. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right, but, but we'll just leave that there. Yeah, I mean, this is this is really tough, and I think that I'm gonna get maybe maybe uh, people aren't gonna like this. Too All much, right, good. I'm, I'm, I like I, it. I'm gonna have to go with Queen Latifah on this one. Okay. Which is really difficult because I think she brought a lot of really good attention by being cast in the role, 
and nails the first song, but then like completely either mails in the rest of the performance and she's in the movie a lot. Yeah. So when, you know, the Miss Sunshine is not really in the movie that much, like, you know, just as far as screen time. So when you are one of the five principals, because, you know, this is a play, there's, there's not, it's not like a huge ensemble cast. You're one of five of the most important people in the movie and you completely lay an egg with your acting performance. It's, it's the one thing that took me out of the movie. Wow. It's the one thing that like took me out and I was, but besides the, the stupid ventriloquist stuff, I was like, the, I was rolling my eyes. Why don't you win? <laughs> but, uh, I, I, I gotta be honest. This performance made me be like, wow, this sucks. Like this performance sucks. So yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but she's my LVP. I will say that I had a moment where I was completely taken out of it too with it. She almost seemed like a little sleepy at some points where yeah. it was just not, I don't know what was going on. Maybe yeah. maybe she didn't have the it wasn't a good environment or she did it last minute or something because she's done other work where she's been really believable. Um, but yeah, I think for this movie LVP. So her getting a, a best supporting actress Oscar nomination is insane. Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, and, and I think that this is I think this is the first LVP that we brought up that that got a nom and <laughs> I Jeez, it is tough to say because the performance of that song alone, if you're going to give it to John C. Riley for the same thing, but John C. Riley did not take anything away mm-hmm. with his performances. He just, they didn't, they didn't wow. Yeah. Whereas some of her acting performances did take a little bit away from what she gave to that, to the song. If this is a show like uh, Project Runway or Top Chef or something, John C. Riley and Queen Latifah are on the chopping block. And yeah. John C. Riley stays, but like they give him a warning. They're like, "Listen, the, yeah. you didn't impress us with this dish. This is not, you know, the creative side of you. You know, we've we were really not impressed. But it's not bad enough that you have to leave this week. And she has to hand in her apron. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I like it. The scene of the film, which for this one we're going to do song of the film. Wh- what was the song of the film for you here? Uh, it's definitely the jailhouse. Tango. Yeah. Is that what it's actually Cell Cell Block Tango. Yeah, sorry. That's a slam dunk for me. That's a killer scene. I want to, like, go to, if we're we're talking MVPs, like, who would be your runner-up? Since we just both had the same for both, where's your, and it can be for the, for this, the runner-up, it can be, like, a super supporting one. If you want, mine will be ridiculously supporting, like, to the point where you couldn't get, you couldn't get lower (laughs) on the supporting scale. So, like, maybe who does the most with, with the least amount of time or something like that? Who gets that just, like, that honorable mention medal Stand that, up. that you'd like to just give them something? You don't have an award for them, so you give them a little participation award. I would wish Tay Diggs was used more. He just, like, literally, what, what like, three or four times in the movie? Yeah. Like, and now, Miss Roxy, blank. Yeah. And that's it. He's out. Like... They could have used him a lot more. Yeah, it's funny. Like, it's funny you bring up that because, like, I was kind of like locked in on giving him the LVP right out of the gate, <laughs> just because it's like, all right, this will be an easy guy to, to right. toss the burn up. Yeah. But it is kind of like watching it again. I do kind of like his presence in it. It 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 gives you it keeps you on your toes a little bit with what they're doing with the plot and mm-hmm. and he's fine in it. And it would be a little it'd be a little mean to go LVP with him with yeah. that. Like, they could have done more with him for sure. Right. But yeah, maybe, I, I maybe, ultimately like him in this. Yeah, maybe uh, an honorable mention LVP is who ever decided to like feature him so prominently in the trailer. 
just like <laughs> I watched the trailer and like he's like a big deal in the trailer. Like this is one of the reasons yeah. to come see this. Yeah, that's and, a that's click. And he has like yeah, he has like three lines and he's never in it. Yeah. <laughs> so that goes right up with with Grant's uh, giving the honor of mention LVP to Lawrence Olivier's smoke cigarette smoking in the in, in Rebecca as he chokes his way through it. Uh, I I like for a little kind of like supporting MVP. I, I like um, our Hungarian cellmate who kind of you know that. I mean, I just like the inclusion of her. I like her desperate her desperate attempts yeah. to try to communicate, and you know, it obviously really went super for beautiful. And, and then and, it got, got yeah, fun. just cool. I, I her inclusion in this whole thing makes this movie that much better. Like that whole element to this, and that whole layer that you you don't see the first or even the second or the third time, but you mm-hmm. but when you learn it's there, it's that's kind of a it gives this movie a little more weight. So I I have that in there as kind of an honorable mention. And what would be like your runner up for for song of the movie? Just since we both had the same one, runner up for song is either gonna say yeah. you take care of mama, or I kind of really like Billy Flynn's song, but I think that Take Care of Mama The, the, the Razzle Dazzle or the All I Care About Is Love? All I Care About Is Love. Yeah, cool. Just because I got a kick out of him being such a bullshit artist. But probably yeah. probably going to go with You Take Care of yeah. Mama. Which is funny. You got the LVP. Do but something for Mama. <laughs> the LVP and the MVP. I'll mention this, the same, I, yeah, I'm a, a, same person. Well, this is, well, that was the whole review. We've said it a few times yeah, already. Yeah. She was great in that and then late at night. The, yeah, which, which brings in the... Yeah, the incomplete performance brings in the old <laughs> LVP. I, I, that's just good. Uh, my run-up would be, would be selfing. Yeah. Yeah, I dug that. Okay, so we've already kind of talked a little bit about like what this movie might be today if it came out today. But I don't know, man. What is the legacy of this movie today? Like, how's this movie remembered? The, the legacy is all of the other musicals that got produced. Yeah, and it, 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 it really paved created, the way. It created kind of a new genre in Hollywood. So this actually has a pretty legitimate legacy that lasted eighteen years, and it's you know they're still doing this. Yeah. Do you think how much of do you think Moulin Rouge had a big part in that? Or do you think that the, this getting best picture like tipped the tipped the the big domino, or was it? Yeah, so I guess Moulin Rouge is maybe like the sacrificial lamb in some way because that is the first one they've done. That's the real risk. That's the biggest it. song. The biggest song. Yeah, that that maybe was actually, the rent song. The stupid six hundred forty thousand two hundred minutes. You know, a guy could, Moulin Rouge though is that legitimately. I can take a hammer to the head when I hear that song. <laughs> well, the rent songs are all like songs that theater nerds love. The Moulin Rouge song was a legitimate pop. Yeah. Hit. yeah. Um, but that's the big risk. Whoever was producing that or championing that or spending the money on that. And then the and then Chicago legitimizes it. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, okay, this is actually respected and we're gonna get serious actors. You know, Moulin Rouge is like Christina Aguilera is like starting in it. Yeah. With right, all due respect right. to X T like Pink. Like yeah. So like they're not, you know, Oscar level act- actors and actresses. Yeah. But that's what this movie accomplishes. Chicago. Yeah, they found some legitimate actors that could carry a tune. Yeah, and then, you know, it wins Best Picture. I happen to believe that it's an activist Best Picture choice. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're doing it to say something rather than just saying what's the best movie this year. But, yeah, and we we're gonna get to this momentarily when we go through the list, yeah. and it's in many ways is an unimpressive list of Best Picture nominees. Yeah. I think that it's it kind of been improved year. upon. Well, we're going to get to that. So, uh, so I, I, yeah, there's definitely a legacy to this one. Yeah, it legitimizes the movie musical as a legitimate thing that's going to just keep happening every year. Yeah, and we're going to take good Broadway shows or like, you know, popular Broadway shows and make them into movies because of this movie. So the, the, the crater and the impact is there. I don't know how many people are popping this on and rewatching this these days. I, no, I mean you have to really like. Yeah, <laughs> you have to really like Chicago yeah. to, to rewatch this. If you actually, or, you know, 
don't know how many people you know that are really into musical theater. I happen to know some from college. Like, maybe they would rewatch it. But again, that's not really what we're talking. That's not, a real. Niche-y. It's also not a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. right. It's yeah. very niche. Yeah. Like I, I would. I mean, we're gonna we'll find out ourselves just through word of mouth of uh, how many people or who listen to this podcast are going to be yeah. interested in in diving into this before this episode. Or are they just going to listen to the episode? Without no, it? probably no one that you and I know, uh, mutual friends, would ever watch this or, or definitely <laughs> never rewatch it. Probably not. <laughs> Although I will say this though, compared to the other musicals on this list, I think this is one of the most accessible. Yeah. To to the to the people who are not interested in musicals. Right. I think that uh, that like you said, a lot of the people we know, I think they get through this one way quicker. A part of it's because they know the names and the faces, and it's mm-hmm. it's modern. Yeah. And it it looks really good, and yeah. it sounds really good. Whereas, like, a My Fair Lady is a little bit of a, you know, it's it's out of touch at a time. Right. But, yeah, like you said, there's just that, that that kind of kind of niche is not... Well, we're also speaking from our, our demographic. So, like, 18 to 49-year-old male is probably not the target audience for any musical, period. No, we're going out but to if, see... But if they're going to watch one, this is probably the one that you should watch because it's the most... Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Most, most it's, yeah, it's the most accessible. And I mean, we're, we're more likely to go out and see the Ben Affleck's new basketball coaching <laughs> drunk movie. <laughs> so now this is always the awkward question that we ask in the end of this. Is There's 92 Best Picture winners. The goal here is that we're going to get to the end of this list at some point, And we'll have all 92 in podcast form. And hopefully at that time we will have established a ranking list for the, for the podcast. Now, you haven't seen all 92 Best Picture winners. No. But in a vacuum, in a world where you have, one represents what you'd expect one to represent, and 92 represents what you'd expect 92 to represent. Where do you see Chicago, where do you guess Chicago would land in that kind of vacuum scale? So I definitely didn't have enough time to even kind of wrap my head around that. Yeah, this is more or less um, a, a shot at however, shooting the hip question. You're supposed to more guess just off the top of your head. Okay, so I put it in the bottom 25%. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> did that's, that. But I did do something here to supplement this. Okay. I did, I was thinking, I didn't want to be unfair. Like, I, was, I thought to myself, all right, so this is not what I would consider a Best Picture winner. I'm going to go through the last 20 years from 2000 to 2020. Okay, cool. And put these Oscar winners into buckets because like how often does the movie does a movie that you really like actually win best picture and I was like it's going to be either hell yeah I love that I'm okay with it or complete eye roll and and before you hop in we do we will break some news on this podcast it's our first best picture podcast breaking news is Harvey Weinstein has been rushed to the hospital in the time we've been podcasting so this will obviously be old news by the time you hear this whether it's when it comes out or years later, but you can throw that onto the uh, the old barbecue. He's, he's been rushed to Bellevue Hospital because of chest pains. Uh, alternatively, he would have been at Rikers Island. It's not looking good for Harvey. So, so yeah, like I was saying, so um, I've got the last 20 years here of best picture winners, and we got three categories. So of 20, I have six in the hell yeah category, Okay. six in eye roll, and seven okay. So like really balanced, actually, which okay. I didn't think. And, and uh, searching the last 20 years as of this year. 
Yeah, or since, including Parasite. So okay. the fuck yeses first. Are, I'll I'll kind of abstain on movies we haven't reviewed yet, just to just for yeah, teaser okay. purposes. We don't have to go yeah, into just, them. Yeah, We're just going to go through them. Listen, so, go do it. As far as what I was really excited to see win, Gladiator two thousand one, Departed two thousand seven, No Country for Old Men two thousand eight. Uh, the Lord of the Rings, the last one came out in 2004. Uh, Hurt Locker, 2010. And Birdman in 2015. Okay. As far as what I was okay with, like didn't hate it. 2002, Beautiful Mind. 2011, The King's Speech. 2013, Argo, which is a movie I really like, but winning Best Picture is, a, you know, it's another conversation. Um, 12 Years a Slave in 2014. Uh, Moonlight in 2017. Green Book in 2019. Which a lot of people didn't like, but I didn't really have an issue with that. And uh, okay with Parasite in 2020. And then... You saw Parasite or you didn't see Parasite? Just... No, I didn't, see, I didn't see all these, but I didn't... But just I, the idea of them. I, I, right. right. Um, just kind of... I think the, the, the crew around Parasite was so much fun. Yeah. Between Bong, the uh, director, and yeah. then like the cast. That I just kind of... It's more so being okay with it because I haven't seen it yet. I might that might turn into a fuck yes when I see it. Right, gotcha. Um, yeah. But I think it will. It was a, it was a cool one. Um, and then yeah, I roll. These are the ones that I'm like, oh geez. When, when they won the uh, best picture award, I'm going to go backwards here. Shape of Water in 2018, which is just I don't think anyone's ever going to watch that again. Episode coming up, by the way. <laughs> I believe in two episodes we'll be doing that with McNall's going to be in the mix. Oh yeah, okay. I I want to hear McNall has a a passion for Shape of Water that I really want to <laughs> hear him dive into. Um, Spotlight in 2016. It just was one of the most boring films I've ever seen and Time out. The way it was done. I I've, I've teased this one before. That's one of my least favorite on this okay. list. And it's, it's super recognized as a great Best Picture winner, and right. I have major issues with it. To the point where you're probably not going to hear that episode soon because I don't want to dig too deep into it. I just go. think it's the classic, like, this should win because of what it's about. Oh, we're patting ourselves on the back. Look, yeah, like, I'm, like, I'm going to say. Hey, I, every, I, everyone's on board with you. Open. Everyone is against right. the, the priests with their, you know, uh, being pedophiles. Everyone's against that. Yeah. Um, and has been for years. Anyway. You're not getting any arguments from me. So good, good, move on. <laughs> um, 2012, The Artist. Um, 2009, Slumdog Millionaire. Uh, wow. Really? Yeah. Did you see it? Okay, I didn't see it. Oh, <laughs> man. I'd love to, I'd I love to have you be your words on that one. You may, you may have to do that episode. Okay, well, now. I might... This, this, That's Danny Boyle, this right man. That's... I might have to say this right now that I will watch Slumdog Millionaire... And if I'm going to eat my words, I guarantee I will do it on this podcast. Yeah, and I will, fa- I will face, I will face up to it. All right, and then anyone here can, you know. Well, you're talking about one of my favorite directors, there, so that's a that okay. that one. I couldn't be that's quiet just, on that. I couldn't be quiet. I tried to stay quiet on Spotlight. I tried, I, I couldn't stay quiet on Spotlight. From the outside looking in, it just seems a little gimmicky. Okay, whatever. Okay, all right. Uh, Crash. I don't think that you're going to push back on that one. The, my my thoughts are documented. <laughs> uh, Million Dollar Baby. Thought it was as much as I like Clint Eastwood. I thought I was just like so obviously emotionally manipulative that I was just kind of over it. Uh, obviously, then, I disagree with that. Any listener of this podcast knows that's one of my favorite <laughs> movies of all time. But we'll, I'm not going to. Uh, and we've kept the streak going. Where I think it's now been mentioned in every episode. So, but thank you for that. Cool. And then last one, drum roll, please, please. I roll uh, for 2003 for Chicago. And there you go. Coming, coming full circle. It is an interesting scope of the of the movies of the last of the last twenty years. 
I listen when I look at Chicago, like you said, bottom twenty five percent. I, I think it's kind of kind. I think it, it's probably it's probably <laughs> less than that. I, well, I, I don't and, know. And, some, and it's not like movies, I like Chicago. I like Chicago. Some of the I, movies in the forties and thirties and stuff like that are just it, it, some of them. Some of them are better than you think they would be. Yeah, no, there's there's some bad ones. I would say you know I would say like one to ninety two. And listen, I like Chicago. I, I don't dislike it, but I think you said it perfectly in saying best picture winner. You know, we started this podcast over what makes a best picture winner. Is it this grand scope of an epic or is it this poignant issue that, that really makes you think? I mean, let's be completely frank here. Chicago's neither of those. No. And it's mindless fun. It's yeah. And it's, it's a, you know, it's fun for what it is. It's not a best picture winner. And we're, and we're, we're going to so, hold it up. And that's one of the reasons, one of the purposes of this podcast is that because I think people love, and I've said this before, I think people love to pick on the Oscars because they don't pick what should have won most years. Mm -hmm. Every Best Picture winner isn't necessarily what a Best Picture winner should be. Mm -hmm. However, my point in looking at this list and doing this is is that you'll find that most of these movies are not bad movies. Right. You know, that that they're – it was picked that year. So there's something about it that is redeeming, and I think that we in this in this podcast that we've put together here, I think we've talked a lot about what's redeeming about this movie, and it is a fun, like you said, kind of. And I wouldn't say mindless is a little harsh because there are some elements to it that when you learn about or you think closer to that they mm-hmm. they kind of played with. And right. There are layers in here. It's not it's not a layerless movie that's just it is what it is up front, yeah. and that's that. But again, if, this is not any kind of you're not doing any kind of major. If they would have gotten, and maybe this is just because we've seen it more now in 2020 than we would have seen it in 2002, if they got more into this existing in Roxy's head and maybe some of the emotional issues that lead to someone having those kind of delusions of grandeur, then you have more poignancy and you could really back back up the technical achievement with that, Um, but it doesn't have that. No, it doesn't. We've now reached to the point where we do what we say we're not going to do and we talk about the other movies that are nominated. (laughs) And... We have these movies called up. We're going to kind of go through them. I'll read the little synopsis of what they are. Just right out of the gate, of, of the five movies, have you seen any or all of them or none of them or some of them? Uh, I haven't seen The Hours. Okay, so I'll, we'll read the movies up first. Yeah. So it's Chicago Wins, The Hours, starring Nicole Kidman and Julianne Moore. Mm-hmm. Meryl Streep's Street. too, right? Yep. And of course, John C. Riley. And John C. Riley. Uh, the Pianist, with a hard T at the end is Roman Polanski's piece with Adrian Brody being the youngest male winner to win Best Actor. And then kind of just like fizzled a bit after that. Yeah, uh, uh, inexplicably. Gangs in New York, which you're going to hear a whole lot of next week. as we'll, we'll, we'll delve into that a little bit too. And then Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. So before we go through the synopsis of this, I, I will kind of say like, this is kind of a four nominee year because Two Towers was not going to win. That is, they clearly... This was either going to go to Fellowship of the Ring that first year, right? And then the other two would be nominated but not win, or they were going to leave it to the last year. The second one is not ever going to win. In that, yeah. In that, and this is and and God bless Lord of the Rings. You know, not not my cup of tea, but Lord of the Rings Two Towers is not Godfather Part Two. Let's be completely <laughs> frank here with this. All right, it's not even Empire Strikes Back. All right, so so we'll start with the hours. Did you see the hours? No, I did not either. And you know. I got to be completely honest with you. Until yesterday, I didn't even know what the hell it was about because it just sound. I hate to say this because I don't like to use this word, 
when describing movies, really anything, because it's kind of a cheap, safe word. It sounds boring, dude. I'm sorry. It's the hours. It sounds like there's going to be hours out of my <laughs> life that I'm not going to get back. But what, 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 <laughs> the story of how the novel Mrs. Dalloway affects three generations of women, all of whom, in one way or another, have had to deal with suicide in their lives. So I'm, this sounds, based on the actresses that are involved, it's probably a really well-acted movie. And yeah. It's probably... I'd probably enjoy it, to be completely mm-hmm. honest with you. When I hear the title, it sounds like I'm going to go to sleep. When I hear the synopsis, I'm intrigued. A critical question for me. Okay. One of my big pet peeves in movies and literature. Is their last name ours? Oh, I'm with you on that one if it is. The only one that gets a pass because the movie is so good would be Will Hunting. <laughs> yeah, good. Will that is Hunting. the only thing that gets, right. gets a pass. But that's, that is a knock on that movie, though. We don't need him to be named Will Hunting else. and then Good Will Hunting. No, it's, it's not. Uh, it's Virginia Woolf. Is the, Virginia is, Woolf. I guess, yeah. Okay. It's, it's a, it's a, I didn't even realize that if, it was if, like a If like, her name was Virginia Hours, and Laura Hours, and Leonard Hours, like that would be really bad. But it's not. So, okay, good for them. Yeah, I didn't even realize that it was a Virginia Woolf thing. We could have thrown Virginia Woolf in that synopsis, IMDb. Seriously, how do you not mention that? Major name. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, probably probably really well acted. uh, Just seems really boring. um, And it just, like, based on that synopsis, I just wouldn't want to spend two hours watching that. Yeah. Know, as much as and let's let's hope it's two I, hours. I feel I, it's, <laughs> it's, it's hours. not. It's two <laughs> hours and thirty seven minutes. So feel, oh <laughs> there's more than two hours Good coming Lord. out of our life with the hours. As much as I feel sympathy for him, I just yeah. I mean, it's just probably some some I'd rather watch uh, issues in there. Lord of the Rings again, and that's <laughs> three and a half hours. Anyway, all right. The pianist, a Polish Jewish musician, struggles to survive the destruction of the Warsaw Ghetto. Of World War II. So these World War II movies are, are always get the Oscar attention. You know, I, I usually end up liking most of them too. Adrian Brody is is kind of your, your big dog here. Did you see it? No. I did not. And I, I tapped on a lot of these World War II movies. I did see, recently see Life is Beautiful, as I've said in, in the previous podcast. Have you seen that one? No. That one I recommend. As, and I kind of watched it after Parasite, so I was into that subtitle okay. mode. And I just, this past week, wa- week watched Pan's Labyrinth. Which I'll talk about when we do the Shape of Water episode. The only thing I've seen from Life is Beautiful is Roberto Benigni walking over uh, people's heads to get his uh, Best Actor award. Right. Have you seen right. that? Yeah, you no, seen I absolutely that? have. Yeah. yeah, I watched that. Right after watching the movie, I, I try to watch the, the acceptance speeches. Yeah, we, we can't really judge the hours or the pianist because we haven't seen them. No, but don't feel bad because we do this every episode. And okay. we, we belittle movies that, are, that we haven't seen that people are, are scream at home saying, how could you do this? So we know we're being ignorant. Yes, right. That's kind of one of the shticks here with this. It's, what we, it's not a who should have won podcast. Which brings us to Lord of the Rings. The Two Towers. I, I personally, I'm not even into the fantasy genre, but no, I just I'm thought not. all the Lord of the Rings were excellent. You're a big Lord of the Rings? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I thought cool. they were all really, really excellent, and any one of them could have won. It's probably good that they only gave one of them Best Picture. Like you said, it was either going to be the first or the last. Uh, yeah, I don't so think the Two the Towers was ever... Honestly, that's the one I enjoyed the most, to be completely honest with you. I think I like the two. Well, that battle scene is like killer. Yeah, right? yeah. But, I mean, most of the co-hosts here that have joined us so far are big Lord of the Rings guys. I know my brother Brendan B is. I know Artie B is is huge on it. I think Grant Grant is a big Star Wars guy, so he's not. Okay. I don't think he's as into this one, he but have the they're all giving thumbs up to Lord of the Rings. Where I'm kind of more on the sidelines. But the last time we checked in with our stars, while Frodo and Sam edge closer to Mordor with the help of the shifty Gollum, 
The divided fellowship makes a stand against Soren's new alley, Soroman, and his hordes of Isenegard. <laughs> so, so that is not really going to do anything for someone who has not seen or doesn't know what Lord of the Rings is. No, it's not. You're going to read that and be like, no, what so. the hell is that? Is this a video game? Like, what, what are we talking about here? Uh, yeah. And then finally, and again, we're going to spend a ton of time on this next week, but I do want to hear your thoughts because I think that you're big into this movie. 100%. Yes. Gangs of New York. Okay. So I, I'll say, why don't we get ahead of this? Give us, a, give us why you, you love it because Artie's going to Artie B is going to hit this movie hard next week. So he's going to trash it big time. Oh yeah, my uh, Chris God. Chris G will be what there. A heel. Chris G will be there because he loves the movie too. So he's going to be there to try to defend him head on. But maybe we'll get ahead of this. But and before you you go into to what you like about this movie, and I'm guessing this is the one you thought should have won. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So this is also and we'll just do the the in, okay. in, eight, in case you don't know anything about Kings in New York in 1862 Amsterdam Valen returns to the Five Points area of New York City seeking revenge against Bill the Butcher played by Daniel Day Lewis his father's killer so just super interested in that time frame in New York um, you know being a New Yorker seeing the city in the 1800s and kind of obviously how it's evolved since then and and thinking about that period of immigration, which is like the Irish and like the, basically the second wave of European uh, immigration coming in and kind of like the bad treatment that they got getting off the boat. You, you, there's some scenes there where, you know, the, the natives, as they call themselves, probably like the British that were over here already, were just not wanting anyone else to come and how that kind of mirrors some issues that we have now with, with immigration and, and everything. So I think that whenever you look at, especially for me, looking at old school New York and the people, you see a lot of behaviors that are modeled and a lot of, we're dealing with some of the same things, some of the fundamental American issues. And that kind of, being able to see that is just so interesting, doing it from an artistic perspective like Scorsese did. And we're also in the age of Scorsese's overdue for an Oscar. So I thought that that was, well, I guess this is best picture, not best director. But anyway, um, well, but yeah, he would probably get to bring home the, the, the best picture too. That I mean, that is so much more engrossing and interesting than a musical that's a parody of Chicago. Like, come on! And then also yeah. the performances from uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Daniel Day Lewis. Daniel Day Lewis, I think, won. Right? Uh, uh, no, he did not. He didn't win best actor. He did not. No, uh, okay. Adrian Brody. Right, 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 right. Adrian Brody won. So all those things together, probably, honestly, I probably have a soft spot because I'm of Irish descent and I live in New York City. But yeah, that, I that mean, was, as, as do I. That, but, uh, uh, so I watched this recently and I am like somewhere in the middle of this debate. Like, and I'll get my thoughts out next week, but the scenes with DiCaprio and Daniel Day-Lewis are all-time, all-time combo stuff. There are some problematic parts of it that I, you know, that are going to come into play next week. I think when we're talking about it versus Chicago, gee, come on. I mean, just look at it. This is a movie people are watching today. Right. Regularly. Right. It's a Scorsese, you know, a Scorsese big time project in itself. And like you said, the, the, the history of it is super interesting. Yeah. It's kind of hard to believe that it didn't win. <laughs> I think yeah. I have to think one of the only reasons it didn't was pre 9-11 Related, I would have to. I don't never. I've never read that or thought or heard anyone spring that. But I have to think yeah. that like it was probably filmed and kind of generated and done in a pre nine eleven, and they just weren't ready to do to give an award to a movie where New York's getting 
literally getting bombed yeah. and, and attacked and there's wars going on in New York. I got to think that if five years earlier, if it's Chicago versus gangs in New York or five years later, yeah. I don't even think it's close. Right. I, I think that this is a victim of that really, really complicated year that our, that our country and yeah. our city right. endured. Yeah. So you think it's the post 9-11, you know, somber Kind of one or yeah, two I think that hurt. Right. I have to think that. Okay. I don't. I, I'm sure that there are people have written and talked about this. Yeah. But I just, no, it, just looking at it like now, it, like it just seems like let's give it to the happy musical where John C. Riley's doing a clown dance, where as opposed to wars in the streets of New York City yeah. that was filmed right before those attacks happened. Yeah. I don't know. And it's always cool to go down when you go down to like Lower Manhattan now, like Financial District, and you see some, you know, the street names are still there. And you know, tech, you can kind of like go to where the five points was, and just kind of think that this shit used to go down here. It's it's crazy, yeah, to, compared to what it is now. Yeah. Um, and underrated performance from Liam Neeson in that movie. Oh God, I love Liam Neeson. Priest Valen. You know, you one know, was another first, like, one action of... badass roles. God, he's awesome. And you know what I feel is one of the more underrated Liam Neeson performances in one of the more underrated action films. If we want to talk about this whole. Marvel, I know this is DC, but Marvel World. Batman Begins, man. He's oh, yeah. so good in that. And yeah. I love that movie. And it, it kind of takes a second fiddle to Dark Knight because Dark Knight's obviously like kind of the award-winning yeah. part of that franchise. But, uh, man, I love that Isn't movie. Raz, Raz al Ghul or something? Raz al Ghul. Yeah. And, and, God, he just, he adds so much weight to what Christian's bat, Christian Bale's Batman is. Yeah. Uh, I love that movie. I, I think that movie gets gets undershot for what yeah. for what it is. But for sure. I so I guess long and short of it is complete travesty that Gangs of New York didn't win over Chicago. Yeah, yeah. So this that part of the conversation we're gonna get into next week, and that'll be a little teaser for those of you who are still with us here. Please, uh, I, I pray of you guys when you're talking about <laughs> if anything's problematic in that movie, how you know you're dealing with people 150 years ago. Yeah, this is just the way that you know the, the way, way that it was back then. Of course, we all know that it's problematic to throw rocks at immigrants. That's what these morons were doing at that yeah. point. He's going he's gonna to go after Cameron Diaz a lot. That's kind of one of yeah. his. I would say in the entire Martin Scorsese canon, that's one of the worst cast. It's one of the worst casting jobs. I mean, yeah. eek. Yeah, I think you've got to go with either an Irish actress or like just a, a better... Actress. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I mean... It, she's gotten a lot better, but in 2003, I don't think she was there. Yeah, and he's going to be challenged to make his point beyond that because I don't think anyone's going to really necessarily disagree with him there. Right, well, but listen, uh, Rob, this was, this was fun, man. Uh, you have any closing thoughts to throw out there? I got one closing little, little nugget here, and then I'll, uh, and I'll sign off. So a couple really out there. I think one of the, the big things to blame for the reason why this one Best Picture... Uh, someone said it, I think it might have been Bill Simmons, that usually the best narrative wins. Mm-hmm. So the, the, well, the story behind the movie. So like Parasite has a great narrative around it. Mm-hmm. Could, could have been the first foreign language film to ever win, and then it wins. So like if you have a great story around your movie, you have a really good chance to win an Oscar. The critics really push this movie. Every critic that you're reading is like, Roger Ebert says... There is an inspired scene of ventriloquism and puppetry at a press conference. Like, are you kidding me, Roger Ebert? 
I, like I, I can't even imagine if that. If they get behind it, man. Roger, you know, did you said, did you look at? I just like yeah. the, the words inspired scene, and then that being followed by ventriloquism and puppetry <laughs> from a serious movie career. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? There's, there's another uh, ridiculous one where Mike Clark of USA Today said, I guess he was trying to like just promote this in some way. He was trying to write something for the guys because I guess like you know you think Broadway musical, you don't think like the husband is not the one who has the idea to go. Uh-huh. Um, it's like, if you're a guy, you sit through this movie thinking, you know what I really want is for the two ladies to be decked out in sexy duds and get together on stage in the end. Well, guess what? You just got your late Christmas present. Like, God. God are bless, you kidding me? God bless the mid-2000s. Yeah, it's a, it's a three months pregnant Catherine G- G- Jones. And <laughs> all right, all right. She's beautiful. She's, she's incredibly beautiful, beautiful but I'm just saying like... Nobody knows she's pregnant while watching it. Don't act like... The 25-year-old guy is going to want to see this movie and, like, you're going to sell it to him because of, like, yeah, a show At tune. the end of the day, it's a PG-13 movie here. Yeah. Uh, did you look at on, on Rotten Tomatoes, the, the numbers? No. Okay. Yeah, what, would you, what would you think audience and, and uh, t- what critic and then audience would be? I think maybe, like, low 70s for – well, the critics really liked it. So maybe I'm guessing a little bit higher, like, in the 80s. And the audience is, like, low 70s, high 60s. Yeah, they're actually somewhat on – Point. You, I mean, you nailed it with, with the critics. They're 86. And audience was 83. All right. Well. Yeah. You know what, though? There's not much to, like, attack this movie with as from a viewing standpoint. You're not going to, yeah. like, I want my time back and my money back. Like, it's yeah. you watch it, you watch it, it's fine. You know, so, like, it, it's going to, like... In closing, yeah. I, I just, I don't hate the movie. I just hate it as a best picture. Yeah. If it was I on, if I just happened to be flipping through and it was on cable and there was in one of the songs that I happen to like... Then I would probably leave it on for five or ten minutes. Yeah, it's got um, some rewatchability. And, and like, yeah, if if someone who I know likes show tuned kind of uh, movies or or shows and wanted to see one, I would say yeah, definitely see Chicago. It's it's yeah. if you're going to see one of these, it's fun. All right, man. You know this is this is fun. I had a blast. I uh, as I normally do. Uh, was happy to finally get you on here with it. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to having you back again. Yeah. I'd love to see you maybe showdown with RDB in the future. Showdown with RDB, maybe <laughs> eat my words over uh, um, Slumdog Millionaire. We got a lot of things on the plate. You'll you'll hear this again. Yeah, for sure. And we got some good combos. I also would love to do like an older film with you too, and see see how maybe when you haven't seen, kind of re- see how you react to that. But uh, next week will be a Broadway melody from 1929. That is the name of it. It's not just a Broadway melody. It's the name of it, and it's. Don't if that scares you away. Stay for the uh, the Scorsese debate. If you're a big fan of Broadway Melody 1929, the second best picture winner, you got that too. So we started with Tay Diggs. We'll we'll end with Tay Diggs. Five, six, seven, eight. Thank you for listening. Take care. This is my kind of town, Chicago is my. Town Chicago is my kind.